Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, with your AEW All In London Ultimate Preview Edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. Getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened in the world of AEW this week, but we are also previewing the biggest wrestling event in history, AEW All in London, going down this Sunday from Wembley Stadium. We have an absolute ton to get to on today's show. Vintage Chris Vanini will be along momentarily, but before we get to him and before we get to AEW All In, I need to open the show with a few reminders. First, of course, that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please do not forget to leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple. If you take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. We will read that live right here on the show. For every week, but especially this week, I do need to remind you to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Not only for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff, but we want you to be able to participate in our pre and post show polls for AEW All In. We're going to post the first one right around when Zero Hour begins, the pre show poll and the post show poll as soon as AEW All In goes off the air. We will give you our pre-show expectation grades here on today's show, but for our AEW All-In Instant Analysis podcast coming out Sunday as soon as that program goes off the air, we need your votes to determine your thoughts on the show and juxtapose those against mine and, of course, Chris's. So don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for all of that. Please also remember as we kick off this show, I happen to love the number... Five. And I hope you do too, because for five bucks a month, $50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Please visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. And if you do, not only will you be supporting the show directly, but for that low, low price, you will get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling recaps of Monday Night Raw, NXT, AEW Dynamite, and SmackDown. I say every week, it's the vast majority of the time, plus news posts every single week coming out on Friday. Again, sign up, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. All right, folks, let's get into today's show. Now, this is going to be a two-part episode. We're going to kick things off by talking about everything that happened in AEW that does not at least directly have to do with AEW all in the card itself. And then the second half of the show will be that AEW All-In Ultimate Preview. Vintage will join your boy, the Silver King, to break down the entire All-In card in the second half of the show. We're going to give our overview of the card. We're going to talk about every single match, what happened on TV leading into it, our predictions for those matches, what we think is going to happen with the storylines moving forward. And then at the end, we will give you our pre-show expectation grades for AEW All-In. As I said, a loaded episode. I'm glad you're here. Stick with us through the entire thing as we talk about the biggest wrestling event in history. And yes, you're probably going to hear that about 30 times on this show because that's the gimmick I'm rolling with on this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. All right, let's get to AEW this week. Uh, Collision, I thought was solid, you know, not spectacular, definitely better than last week. Rampage, you know, was fine. It had one really good match, so it wasn't a total waste of time watching it. 
Dynamite on Wednesday, I found to be an extremely entertaining episode. It was funny how focused AEW used to be on the in-ring product, yet this show was almost entirely sports entertainment. And it just goes to show that no matter whether you're WWE or you're AEW or you're New Japan or Impact or whatever, you need a mix of both to make wrestling exciting on a consistent basis. And the focus on the sports entertainment aspect of the entire deal probably made this AEW's best go-home show ever, or at least the go-home show where the most go-hominess occurred to actually build towards the pay-per-view. Now, that largely happened because they needed to fill in a bunch of storyline holes for All In that really should not have existed at all this late in the process. Some of them were sloppily done. Others were solid. Tony Khan did mention that a couple bookings had to change due to unforeseen circumstances, so perhaps that's the reason for some of it. But as we noted on last week's show and shows prior, the build for All In mostly started two to three weeks too late in many cases. There shouldn't have been a need to do this much storytelling on a go-home show when those feuds and stories could have been established long ago. But again, what we got Wednesday was pretty damn entertaining, so there's really not much of a, let's say, complaint in that regard. So with that said, let's get into everything that happened across the five hours of AEW TV that at least at the time did not directly impact All In itself. And then, like I said, the second half of the show will be that AEW All In Ultimate Preview. If you are listening to us you know, closer to the weekend or even Sunday morning uh, before All In begins, we will have a timestamp in the episode description so you can jump right to the AEW All In Ultimate Preview if you so choose. Let's kick things off, though, with the big match on Collision. It was the main event, Darby Allen against Christian Cage. Allen hit code red and then tried coffin drop outside into Luchasaurus, only to get caught cold and clotheslined by Christian. Then Darby hit a missile dropkick off the top rope with Christian sitting in a chair. Outstanding spot. Next, Darby missed coffin drop onto the ring apron as Luchasaurus pulled Christian out of the way. That was a gnarly spot. Back in the ring, Christian drilled Darby with the TNT title for a fall that was saved by a foot on the rope. Darby avoided a spear with a missile dropkick into the corner. Christian came back with a sunset flip powerbomb and a clothesline spear. Moments later, Darby countered kill switch with a jackknife cover for the 1-2-3 in 20 minutes. Of course, the heels attacked immediately after the bell. Luchasaurus chokeslammed Darby, and then he forced Tony uh, Schiavone, I almost called him Tony Soprano, uh, Tony Schiavone, to count the 1-2-3 for Christian, and then he raised his arm in victory. This was probably the most creative post-match attack that AEW has done, because at least it was something beyond the normal stuff we get 10 times a week across the two shows. Also, man, Collision loves these really long main events. Like, most recently, this did not need to be that long, but it was quite fun, and it was wrestled well. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. Might have gone higher if it was shorter. This also continued the trend I've been talking about, and I'm going to mention this numerous times on today's episode alone, but I've been talking about it for weeks now. AEW has this tendency to protect wrestlers by having them lose with pinning combinations and just not letting guys hit finishers. So it's pinning combination or knockout instead of submission, instead of like submission tap out or finisher pinfall victory. Look, that's way better than like disqualifications or roll-ups or any of that shit, but it is an obvious trend. And once you notice it, you realize 
very few people are actually being put over with victories because they all come in a somewhat cheap fashion protecting the loser. And it happens in a lot of cases where the loser really does not need to be protected. Here, it made sense. Darby and Christian Cage, that's fine. I think it happened with Darby and Brian Cage a week ago or two weeks ago. And it's just like, why are you protecting Brian Cage? Put Darby over. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. So again, this was an example of it being smart. But previously, and in other situations, it's unnecessary. We'll talk about that in a little bit. On Collision, uh, Ricky Starks backstage was angry at Tony Schiavone for saying that he was suspended a month when it's actually 28 days. He also noted that half of his suspension is already over. Starks promised to bring chaos starting on the show with Big Bill appearing next to him. Immediately after that, Starks got a vignette that looked straight out of the 90s with him just calling himself absolute. Big Bill then squashed a jobber in one minute with a chokeslam as Starks played with his belt. After the bell, he had Bill set up the jobber and he whipped him with the belt. Was this the chaos that he promised, beating a jobber with a belt? I said last week that the wrestling-only suspension for Ricky was dumb, and the fact that it's now half over, and there's only two weeks left, and then we have all in, or sorry, all out next week, and I guess he's not going to be on the card because he's going to be suspended for it, and then is this the craziness that he promised, beating a jobber with a belt? It just makes the booking even worse. Don't get me wrong, Starks was great on the mic backstage, he was better on the mic last week. But to me, none of this meant anything. It didn't It didn't play for me. On Rampage, the match I was talking about, Ray Phoenix against Commander. This was excellent, as one might expect. Phoenix caught Commander with a cutter after a bunch of nonsensical flippy stuff. He also hit a tightrope PK and a rebound hook kick. Commander came back with a springboard Canadian Destroyer and tightrope shooting star press. Really sick shit there. Then he missed a 450 with Phoenix hitting a cradle tombstone pile driver in a great false finish. Phoenix immediately came back with a spinning muscle buster driver for the win. Tremendous bell to bell. The only problem was there was no match story or reason for it happening. Definitely a worthy watch. Four stars, A minus. On collision, Dalton Castle fought Jay White. Castle hit a deadlift German suplex and took care of Bullet Club with the boys at ringside. Then he countered out of Blade Runner, only Ida Uranagi. White eventually hit Blade Runner for the win. It was a nice showcase for White, but another match that happened for no reason with an opponent from outside the normal AEW roster. On Collision, the Iron Savages fought Juice Robinson and the Guns in a trios match. The introduction of these faces was insanely chaotic. There was a dude on the mic just screaming their names and slogans over and over again. The Heels won this totally unnecessary match after Juice hit a leg lariat and a sit-out DDT or something like that. I need to see that move again. It was tough to kind of contextualize it. Uh, Nothing to say about this really, but I will admit the Iron Savages gimmick, it was so ridiculous that it came across like a less funny version of Heavy Machinery. On Rampage, the ROH tag team titles were on the line. Aussie open against Ethan Page and Isaiah Cassidy. Cassidy ate stereo lariats and the finisher for the title retention. Uh, Then the heels cut a promo saying MJF won't hit the kangaroo kick, which I cannot believe is a storyline point. Uh, No problem with this match happening as a showcase for Aussie Open ahead of All In, but there was no reason for it to be a title match, and they ended up having another one on Dynamite, which had no reason to be a title match either. It's also just sad to see like Ethan Page be used in this way. He is so much more talented than this. The Hardys later cut a tape promo from home. They somehow already knew Aussie Open won the match, despite the fact that it was a tape promo. They challenged for the tag team titles on Dynamite, which is what I just mentioned, and again, Why would Aussie Open defend them four days before All In against the Hardys of all people? 
nonsensical. More on that later. On Collision, Jose recorded a call from Roosh saying he wanted the entire group in Mexico because they were failing and needed to have their attitudes adjusted. So Preston Vance showed up. He got drunk. Uh, two guys were kidnapped with bags over their heads. They got thrown into a van. It sure as hell seemed like exactly like the Legato del Fantasma gimmick. But let's see what transpires here. On Collision, Willow Nightingale fought Diamante. Mercedes Martinez came down after a few minutes. Diamante hit sliced bread. When Martinez distracted talking shit, Chris Statlander ran down to take her out on the ramp. Willow then pounced Diamante and won with Dr. Bomb. This got good time at 11 minutes, solid work, and it actually had storyline development for the TBS title. Wow, can you imagine? Look what happens when just a little bit of effort is put into creative for the women. You get something nice like this. On Dynamite, Sky Blue fought Ruby Soho. Decent action both ways. Soho hit no future and then destination unknown for the win. Honestly, both of them came into this match needing a victory. They've basically been losing everything, but Ruby probably needed it a little bit more as a veteran and a notable talent who's part of a group whose other two members are challenging for a title at the biggest wrestling event ever. And she's, of course, not. Uh, she also did the discount double check motion like after the bell for a title, but she wasn't talking about them. So now she wants the title, but they're in the match. It, it seemed unnecessary for her to do that. It was very strange. On Collision, Powerhouse Hobbs uh, fought a jobber. And of course, he won in two minutes with the Spinebuster. Then he did game over to kind of goad Miro. So Miro appeared on the big screen saying he's pushed aside his book and his God and his redemption will piss on Hobbs' cold, dead body. Look, Miro had some momentum when he shifted to this Redeemer gimmick like a couple years ago. But now, for me, it is an absolute total eye roll. Every promo is identical. It means nothing. He's never actually on television. Look, I am never going to complain about a match like this. <laughs> Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> but you have to remember what happened here. Powerhouse Hobbs challenged Miro out of nowhere because he's basically the personification of redemption because he's the redeemer. And now that random match is being put on pay-per-view like two weeks later at All Out. For a couple guys, I'm excited to see wrestle each other. I have not been given any motivation to give a flying fuck about this actual feud. There's no real storyline. There's no heat. I do think it's going to be a banger. But now you're also putting them in a position where one of them is going to have to lose this match. So it's either Miro who just returned like two months ago at the start of Collision and has been squashing jobbers and done absolutely nothing. So he badly needs a win. Or Powerhouse Hobbs, who's still for some reason with the QTV jobbers, who badly needs a win because his return has been completely wasted as well because all he's done is lose. One of them is going to have to lose here. Now, I guess they could do something where QTV tries to help Hobbs and you know, screws him, and then he actually starts feuding with them and breaks away. But is that really like an exciting storyline for Hobbs? And then what does Miro do after he beats Hobbs? Like, is he going to go after CM Punk's fake title? It's very weird what's going on right now. Uh, and then on top of this, Andrade Alito has been completely missing ever since he won that match against Buddy Matthews for his mask. So we're kind of back where we were with Miro and Andrade. And, you know, despite there being two more hours of television. On Rampage, Sammy Guevara fought a jobber. He won in 90 seconds with GTH. I have no idea why, why this was on TV. Nothing's even happening with Guevara right now. He's Jericho's second, Chris Jericho's second in his feud, but 
why he needed a squash match on TV, I have no idea. On Rampage, Nyla Rose cut a tape promo talking about being an AEW original and the most dominant former champion. Cool. Let her have matches on TV and start using her again. When you do that, I'll care. On Rampage, The Righteous and Stu Grayson got a promo package. Apparently, they're coming to AEW from ROH. It was okay. Do we really need more ROH people on AEW TV? Are these guys even good? I mean, I don't know. There's so much talent not being used. It just doesn't really make sense to me. But look, that was it in terms of everything that happened across the five hours of AEW TV that did not necessarily directly in the moment have to do with All In. So with that said, let me go ahead and bring in Vintage Chris Vanini for our AEW All In London ultimate preview ahead of the biggest wrestling event in history. Before we get to Chris, though, allow me to speak for a moment about a cool new product that has been introduced by G-Pen. It is the Tyson 2.0 Higher Vaporizer. This was done in collaboration with Iron Mike Tyson, of course, a legendary heavyweight boxing champion who we have seen in WWE and AEW previously. This vaporizer, it is fully customized in an awesome red boxing glove case packaged real nicely with Tyson colorways. It utilizes G-Pen's new dual-use vaporization system, which proves to be an absolute knockout. I have held this. It looks incredibly cool. If you are someone who utilizes vaporization for one reason or another, the Tyson 2.0 higher is something you definitely want to consider getting your hands on. It has rapid pass-through charging via USB-C. It's lightweight and durable with anodized aluminum casing. The higher redefines the limits of sheer power and portability and utilizing the simple three button operation. There's five LEDs that helps the user experience the Tyson 2.0 G pen higher. It allows for easy setup and activation while allowing an uncompromised knockout experience. Be sure to check it out at gpen.com. Now let's actually welcome Chris into the show. Vintage. Great to have you with us. Look, let's go into this AEW all in London Ultimate preview, we'll start with maybe an overview of what we both think about the card. We'll get into the individual match breakdowns, of course, everything that happened across Dynamite and Collision, you know, leading into them. And we'll give our predictions and picks and all that good stuff as we move forward here. So as of this taping, uh, it's an 11 match card. There is one zero hour bout and probably more to come. Taking an overview of this card, I think the way I want to format this is by saying the right names are being featured. No doubt about that. But I cannot help but feel that to some degree, it's like a glorified house show card more than anything else, which is not exactly fitting of the biggest event in wrestling history. That is something that should be filled with dream matches and the culmination of long-term storylines. That's not to say the card is bad. It's just with a roster like AEW has, it feels like this should have been their WrestleMania. Instead, it kind of feels more like a blood money in the sand show, but obviously with way better matches from like a work rate standpoint. And to be fair, the storytelling of this, even despite all the criticism it's received, and there will be praise and criticism coming up later on the show, the storytelling has been way better than what we would get from those early blood money shows from WWE. The recent ones though, obviously have been a little bit better. Some of the multi-man matches, they make sense, but there's too many of them. A couple of the matches are must-see, but I would say not enough matches are must-see. There's 40 people on the card. Four of them are women. Then you look at the matches themselves. MJF Cole, it really stands out as by far the best-built match on this entire show. It's going to be tremendous, both from an in-ring standpoint and a storytelling standpoint, too. 
but I don't really care at all about CM Punk Samoa Joe. And I consider the real world championship deal ridiculous. There's no heat whatsoever for Young Bucks FTR, which is wild for what's basically a rubber match between them. The hope needs to be that Will Ospreay is going to carry Chris Jericho. The Bullet Club trios match. Now, don't get me wrong about that. That is going to be a banger. But it feels like it probably should have been a singles match, though maybe that's being saved for all out. And if so, that's okay. The women's match kind of feels like it should be a singles match. A car to Tony Storm one-on-one. The other women don't really need to be there. And then you have the ROH tag team titles being contested on the show, which might just be a plot point because it is happening in zero hour, but it's also not really for me. So again, there's some big pluses. The talent that's on the show is fantastic. I mean, it's it's a WrestleMania card in terms of the names that are on, that are involved from an AEW standpoint, obviously. But for the matches themselves and the build, Despite me enjoying Dynamite very much on Wednesday night, I thought it was a great go-home show, filled in a lot of plot holes, this card does for me leave a lot to be desired coming in. Yeah, we'll get into what this whole event means for AEW at the end of the card. It obviously is a, a, a event unlike anything we've seen in this company and, and maybe just in general outside of WWE. But as for the card itself, it kind of feels like a old WrestleMania card when those shows were like 11 matches long and the show would go six hours Mm -hmm. and you wanted to get everybody on the card and the women's match had three or four people in it and you had a lot of multi-man tag matches to get everybody in. So it's I'm not excited for every match on the card. The build to a lot of these has been sloppy. I know there were rumors the card had to be kind of ripped up a few weeks ago and I think that represents that. But in general... Uh, It feels like AEW did what they could to try to make it feel like a giant show in terms of who's on the card. Mm -hmm. It's just the steps to get there have been uh, very hit and miss. Sure. Well, I mean, it is the biggest wrestling event in history. So let's not, you know, forget that as we go through this, that it is indeed the biggest wrestling event in history. So, yeah, let's go into this biggest wrestling event in history and start with the very first match, which actually is a bit of a spoiler because Collision was taped immediately after Dynamite on Wednesday, because everyone obviously needs to go overseas. So if you really are that concerned about getting a spoiler for a single match booking on the show, then you can probably skip ahead. Let's call it two and a half to three minutes, because this one's going to be short. Uh, But we're going to talk about it first here. It is the FTW championship will be on the line. Jungle Boy defending against Hook. Chris, simply for me, this is not a match that should be on All In. Hook has been off TV for weeks ever since he lost the FTW title. Jungle Boy has been fighting and arguing with ECW legends. The match itself doesn't have much of a high ceiling, and the show is already going to be incredibly long. They should have just saved it for All Out. It's literally next week. I don't know why you wouldn't put this on that show. Given the storyline about Jack Perry trying to retire the FTW title and everything that's happened, it just seems like a switch back to Hook is the only thing that makes sense unless Jack has some like trick up his sleeve, like someone interfering and getting his back. But, I, you know, I didn't see Collision, so I don't exactly know how it was built into, like, this happening. Jungle Boy was originally going to retire the FTW title, and that's not what obviously happened on the show. So I guess I'm predicting Hook to win back the title. I don't think it does anything for Jungle Boy. This feud I don't necessarily think has done much for Jungle Boy. So, yeah, I mean, we're going to get into much more detail on the rest of these matches, but for this one, it's kind of a shrug. 
Well, you keep calling him Jungle Boy, but he's basically going by Jack Perry now, pretty much. I, I called him Jack Perry also. With, with the, I said both. With the heel turn and everything. It, um, we'll, we'll talk about it at the end, I guess. But again, having All Out a week after this is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen in the history of pro <laughs> wrestling. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. But it feels like, again, look, Jack Perry is the winningest wrestler in AEW history, I think, and and one of the four pillars. And so if you're doing the biggest show in wrestling history, you want him to be on the card in some form um, for that reason. The story has been not much. I don't love Jack Perry's new entrance music and stuff like that, but I, I'm oh, going to yeah. say he retains Nothing. here, maybe in some sort of a chicanery, but uh, I think Jack Perry wins on this uh, pre-show match. All right. Well, we also had a trios title match that was added on Dynamite. It's going to be the House of Black defending against Acclaimed and Billy Gunn. But how did we get there? That is the question. So starting on Collision, House of Black got a video package carrying Billy Gunn's boots, talking about how he was a shadow of what he used to be. It sounded like they were going to do some type of burial ritual with the boots, which I was kind of looking forward to seeing how they would do that visually. Instead, they dropped them in a trash compactor. House of Black. All these vignettes that we've gotten from them, they're throwing boots in a trash compactor. Clearly, uh, it was obvious from this that they're doing something with Gun returning alongside the acclaimed. My hope was kind of, hey, maybe he'll make believe he's a face, but he's actually going to join House of Black and there's going to be this weird thing where they got into his head. But then I also kind of thought, I kind of just want this whole thing to be over. So then we moved to Dynamite and the acclaimed stormed to the ring and called out House of Black. Um, they replayed the video package prior to them doing that. So... House of Black, they had a cool entrance as usual. They beat them down three on two. Obviously, Gunn returned, scared them all off. He grabbed the mic and said he was angry that they destroyed his boots and tried to ruin his legacy by destroying his boots. Um, Then Billy said that it would be all or nothing at all in with him fighting, not as daddy ass, but as badass Billy Gunn in what I thought they were going to announce would be a career versus titles match, but that was never specified. So I just want to be clear. Billy's promo was fantastic. The storyline and execution of it, though, to me, it's really stupid. There's nothing about it that I've actually liked, though. Look, the fans love the acclaimed and they are completely buying into it. And that's fine. It remains ridiculous that this has been a three match series with acclaimed being easily defeated the first two times, especially since House of Black, by the way, is a great set of trios champions that has no reason whatsoever to drop these titles. Yet this setup is such that a title change feels necessary if they're going to complete the story and get a huge pop in London. Otherwise, what is the point of doing this entire thing? I mean, Billy is nearly 60. He's 59 years old. Retirement makes sense. I guess he could retire at Wembley Stadium and that would be an incredibly notable moment where everyone's serenading him on the way out. But they didn't make it career versus title as a stipulation. Had they done that, maybe that would have been plausible. They're going to need some title changes on the show. I don't know that there's going to be a lot of them. This one, to me, Chris, seems like an obvious opportunity to change the titles. It just really doesn't make any sense to take them off House of Black when they've done such a good job with them. And there's not really been a trios. Even though there's tons of trios in AEW, there's not like a trios division all competing for the title. It just feels like it's been acclaimed over and over again. And it's also really going to suck to see Buddy Matthews take the fall to Billy Gunn here. But that is my prediction. The acclaimed Billy Gunn, they walk out as your AEW trios champions. 
Well, part of the reason you don't have a trio's division is because you have faction warfare going on at all times, mm-hmm. too. You know, like we've got 10 man tags at every pay-per-view and stadium stampedes and stuff like that. So it's it trios has been kind of weird. But in terms of what the story of this was, at least at the end, my read was that Billy was thinking about retiring or, or kind of considering retiring. And then because of the way House of Black was going to uh vandalize his boots and, and him trying to step away he decided he had to come back and he's coming back as badass billy gun and i thought it was a great promo too i i loved it so it got me it got me excited for this i i'm picking a title change here too i think the acclaimed and, and billy gun get their moment that they uh, uh that they've they've had for a while here and we'll see what happens after that but i didn't realize billy gun 59 years old that is wild dude looks incredible he does and uh I'm excited for I'm excited for him to get uh, this this on this stage. He's had an interesting career. The acclaimed continue to be over as hell. It's going to be really cool to see that happening at Wembley. Like a, a lot of the, a lot of these matches, we've never had a WWE like major show environment in AEW. Really, the closest right, to me right. I think is Grand Slam. But to do this in a football stadium or a soccer stadium, football stadium, eighty thousand people doing that entrance is going to be really, mm-hmm. really cool. And I'm looking forward to that uh, as, as well. By the way, his freestyle, his rap for the entrance walk, it better bang. I mean, this you want to talk about pressure. You're doing that in front of 80,000 people. Maybe House of Black attacks them and they get away from it. So they don't have to because it, it's going to be tough to do that. No, over you better stadium. not do that. I'm just saying over stadium. You better, not, you better give that stadium the, the entrance that they want. You, in that setting. You would hope so. But look, a lot of pressure on Max Caster to deliver. He better be right in that now. Hopefully he already. Hopefully it's already done. It should it should have been two weeks ago. Should have perfected it, recited it a million times because you do not want to mess that one up uh, at what? Wembley Stadium. By the hey, way. Hey, wait, wait. What, yeah. What, what are the odds here? What, by the way, on that rap, a Harry and Megan reference. What are we gonna say? What are we uh, gonna say? Where's that line at? Like I would like say minus five hundred. I would say ninety percent. Yeah. Uh, you want to do a minus minus one thousand? Yeah. 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 That's got to be in there. There's gonna be a Harry and Meghan line. I don't think he'll do. I think he'll, he's smart enough not to do Queen Elizabeth, obviously, because she she died. Maybe a yeah. King. Yeah. Maybe a King Charles line. Maybe something about the Prime Minister, but Harry and Meghan seems like a layup. I mean, almost for him to do so. It'll be really interesting for sure. Um, all right, let's keep going. Darby, Allen, and Sting. This was booked against Swerve Strickland and A.R. Fox in a coffin match. So on collision, we saw footage of Darby and Sting attacking Fox at a random independent show. I got to admit, it popped the hell out of me to see Sting, of all people, randomly showing up at like a bingo hall to beat the shit out of somebody. That was cool. It's maybe the coolest thing that Sting has done in this return to AEW. I got to tell you. Uh, Darby and Nick Wayne then cut promos on the heels promising to beat them up on Dynamite. And this was confusing to me because basically they were giving us three quarters of the all-in match on Dynamite four days before the show. Now, obviously, I figured the heels are going to win and then the faces will win in London. It makes sense. Give Swerve a victory. And then on the big show, Swerve loses. Let's actually talk about what happened on Dynamite. So we had Darby and Wayne against Swerve and Fox in a tornado tag team match. There were some heavily choreographed spots, but also some tremendous high risks. Strickland hit the swerve stomp off the apron, putting Darby into a chair. Wayne's nose got busted open hard way, it seemed. He kicked out of a corkscrew brain buster, a cradle fisherman suplex, and swerve's head kick. And I got to repeat what I've said previously on the show. I love that they care about this guy, and it's clear that Nick Wayne is talented. They are booking him 
way, way too strong as an 18-year-old neophyte in his first month in a major promotion. Anyway, uh, Darby was knocked out cold at ringside this entire time, so they weren't even broken falls. Then Wayne avoided a 450 splash and folded Fox over in a trap pinning combination as Darby grabbed Swerve's foot and the baby faces got the one, two, three. After the bell, Swerve turned on Fox for the loss, saying he blows every opportunity he gets. Swerve said this was a test that he failed and he can't trust Fox at all in. Prince Nana then fired him from Mogul Embassy with Brian Cage uh, taking his head off with a lariat and a drill claw. So then Darby, Wayne, and Sting all run down and Allen offers his hand to Fox, lifts him up and hugs him. Then he calls Swerve stupid for excommunicating Fox and now being on his own in London. So Swerve laughs at him. And then Christian Cage and Luchasaurus show up. Christian repeats the whole your father is dead thing because Wayne's father is dead. So he gets to give him shit about that. He got his normal heat shitting on his dad for an extended period. And then the thing kind of just ended. And my take coming out of it first was, holy shit, this segment went on forever. They also, in the moment, didn't clarify what the match would be. It was a four-on-four standoff on TV, but the match was booked two-on-two for a coffin match. So I was wondering, is it now Swerve and Christian, a six-man, or an eight-man? I thought it was going to be an eight-man because there were literally eight wrestlers standing there that could have all fought together. Tony Khan mentioned in media this week, as you said earlier, that he had to make a number of changes to the card for unforeseen issues, and one of them is Fox couldn't make the show. So they pivoted. But it ultimately will be two-on-two, Swerve and Christian, against Darby and Sting. Now, look, you got to do what you got to do in reality. In kayfabe, it made no sense for them to tell this whole story for Fox. He joins Mogul Embassy and Swerve. He absolutely bludgeons and bloodlets Nick Wayne at his home a couple weeks ago. And now Darby's just open arm, willing to accept him back 10 seconds after Swerve turned on him because he lost a match. Why not just let Brian Cage wrestle with Swerve? That would actually make storyline sense. I know they wanted Christian. He's a bigger name on the card, but he wasn't going to be on the card anyway. So what are you doing? The story did help explain why Wayne beat Fox in the match, though, because when it happened, I was like, are you really going to have the baby faces go over on Dynamite and then have them go over again in London at the biggest wrestling event ever? And it was also another loss for Swerve in what may now be one of two this week. Ultimately, it was all okay. It was a lot of chaos. A lot of stuff happened. But Chris, I did think it was sloppy and a lot of story shoved into a really short window on what was already a packed show. Yes. And you would like to think some of these issues could have been figured out a while ago so you don't have to make these changes late. But to to be fair, on the Darby picking up AR Fox line, he didn't just... It wasn't just because he lost. Darby said, hey, you you helped me stay at your place when I was homeless or whatever. Like, I'll always love you for that. And, you know, so he, was, he gave a reason, but he still but he still did it 10 yeah. seconds after he lost a match two weeks he after he right. tried to kill Nick Wayne. No, I agree. I just I wanted that. It was important context in there in terms of like why why he did what he, he gave. He explained it. it. Wasn't yeah, just, yeah, yeah. He oh, explained no, it. Enemy of my enemy. I, yeah. So they're, they're, they tried to explain it. But. You're right. I thought this would just be Swerve, Brian Cage, and and then because if you do that, then you don't need to turn on Air Fox. You don't need to throw away the story you've been doing for the last exactly. Year, you know, but exactly, you didn't need to throw that in out. This would have been a nice thing to do, like 
at All Out or a couple weeks from now to take that story to the next level when mm-hmm. AR Fox switches sides uh, after something to throw it in on the go home show and he's not even involved in the match. It felt like a short term decision just to get. I don't even know. Like Christian had nothing to do with this either. Like you could have just put Christian in a, a different way. I'd be like, I, I, I hate what they did. I just think they rushed it and it was it was kind of sloppy because of that. In terms of picking this match, Chris, so we have Darby scheduled against Luchasaurus for the TNT title at All Out. And we had the baby faces winning on the go-home show. Now, I know AEW is not WWE where you just automatically assume the opposite is going to happen. But coming into this match, I mean, it because it is all in London and it's the biggest wrestling event ever, you really think Sting needs to win the match and the baby you want the babyface to win as well. You want Darby to win. But I kind of look at it and I'm like, well, it would make a lot more sense if Swerve and Christian won and they beat the shit out of Darby and they put him in the coffin. Then he gets his redemption next week at All Out. So like the booker in me, like the, the, the person in my head is saying, well, if I was booking it, Swerve and Christian would win. And that is what makes all the sense in the world. Darby gets his win back next week and he's TNT champion. And what happened with Swerve doesn't really matter anymore. But because it is all in London and the biggest wrestling event in history, I have to pick Darby and Sting. I just think it's going to be a fan service type of match. And I'm not saying that's bad. Sting winning in front of 80,000 people. It's a really good idea. But that is ultimately going to be my prediction. Yeah, I'm going Darby Sting here as well. Sting, you give him this last big moment in his career. I kind of wondered, you know, weeks, months ago, if this might be Sting's last match or, or do something like that. Doesn't appear that's the case. But yeah, I, I think the baby faces win here. You give Sting a moment. Everyone's going to want to cheer him. Simple stuff. You can figure it out from there. And, and I, I think, you know, even though Swerve lost on Dynamite, the idea was the heels got more heat because of what they did to AR Fox. Right. So going in, you're like, all right, I want to see, I want to see Swerve lose, you know? And, and so I think that's what happens. Let's go to the stadium stampede match. Now it was originally booked as Eddie Kingston, Orange Cassidy, best friends and Penta L zero M plus one teammate to be announced against Blackpool combat club and three teammates to be announced. Let's talk about what happened on dynamite. So first we had Phoenix against John Moxley. Mox tore at Phoenix's mask and stomped him on the bottom of the ramp. He focused on the head for the rest of the match, hit a spike pile driver later. At this point, Shivani told us what was a one-sided beatdown was an incredible match. It wasn't. Ironically, though, once he said that, it became an incredible match. Uh, Phoenix rolled through a rear naked choke with a double stomp. He had a cutter plus a frog splash. Mox bit Phoenix's face on top of the uh, top rope. Uh, falling with an avalanche death rider in a false finish. So Mox immediately locked in the rear naked choke for the knockout win. BCC attacked immediately after the bell, cranking Phoenix's neck back with a crowbar while holding another, threatening to hit him in the head with it. So Santana and Ortiz returned, attacking Pentagon and Kingston as the faces were trying to save Phoenix. Uh, BCC seemingly hit Phoenix over the head with a crowbar. It was off camera. AEW producers missed the shot. Best friends ran down. They did a full injury cell with a stretcher for Phoenix. Kingston later refused to let Renee interview him because of her husband. And I thought it was a good cherry on top of the entire thing. Eddie just being so pissed off at Renee for something that was obviously out of her control. He's like the rated R version of PG-13 Kevin Owens, kind of. At least he was in this moment. 
Uh, first, this match was excellent. Four stars, A minus. Kicking out of the Avalanche Death Rider was absolutely ridiculous for a non-title TV match. And as we've talked about all show, I mentioned it earlier, I told you, I've been talking about this for weeks. It's another instance of AEW doing a finish that avoids a talent getting pinned by a finisher or tapping out. There would have been absolutely no harm whatsoever in Phoenix uh, getting pinned by a super version of Mox's finisher, which was a he- it's a head move after the head was focused on all match and stomped outside early in the match. That's totally fine. You don't need to get him knocked out after the fact. Now, in terms of the injury angle, uh, it was to write off Phoenix for all in because he has a visa issue and is not going to be allowed into London. So I thought thought it was successful in that regard, especially having it come after he did look incredible in the ring, first on Rampage and again on Dynamite. Lots of sympathy here for him when he comes back. The key is going to be whether AEW takes advantage of that when he comes back or they just put him with Penta and they do their thing and there's no titles, there's no nothing. He would be a great international or TNT champion, Phoenix would be. Then we have the Santana and Ortiz return. Them coming back together was a shocker. All reports were that they were totally on the outs, they hate each other, they can't stand each other, and they would not be coming back as a team. So having them both return as heels against Kingston, that was interesting. It's actually even more surprising given their history because I figured if anything, Ortiz would side with BCC as Kingston attacked him, you'll remember, months ago, and then Santana would maybe go to the faces. That could have made sense. But I guessed their hatred of best friends, PNP, uh, won out in the end because that's a long-term feud. But it would have been interesting to see one of them on each team. I think that would have been cool. So instead of six versus six, as scheduled, Stadium Stampede instead is going to be five versus five. Overall, it was a really hot build to a match that was heavily thrown together last week. And I liked very much what we got on Dynamite. It was way better of a transition to make a change out of Phoenix than the previous match that we just talked about was to make a uh, transition away from AR Fox. We've only talked about a couple of matches here and already two of them were like, oh, someone who was going to be in the match got written off on the go-home show. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know the details of when the visa issues came up, but you figured that's got to be determined well in advance. Like, to not have Phoenix on your biggest AEW show of all time is incredibly frustrating. Same with not having Brian Danielson because he's hurt. And, and and so, like, it was a weird mix of things happening. And this whole segment was incredibly sloppy. For one, like you said, the crowbar hit. We missed it. You know, we, we didn't see it. That was the whole point of the thing, you know, that, that he's hurt. We just completely miss it. Santana and Ortiz returning one after the other. Like, one got music, one didn't. They didn't make it clear. Like, he runs out and he turns around back to the camera. So you have to, like, wait, is that who I thought it was? Then you've got music hitting. Commentary is trying to explain who it is. It was just so rushed. And it's like, if you're bringing back Santana and Ortiz, guys who have been with your company since the beginning, guys who fans thought weren't coming back, mm-hmm. make it a big moment. Make it a big entrance or, or something or give them a promo or like just like it was just like, nope, they just ran out and they're here. They're getting in a scuffle and now they're in the biggest show of all time. And it's like, what? I have so many questions like you just laid out in terms of why they're together and, and what happened and everything like that. Just 
it felt so rushed and sloppy from a production standpoint, which is so often the issue mm-hmm. with AEW in these big moments is that they don't hit it right. And so ultimately, like, this match is going to be ridiculous. It always was mm-hmm. a stadium stampede, and I'm sure I'll have a lot of fun with it. I'm very curious how this is going to work in a full football stadium. I'm, I'm honestly really excited to see it. But the what we got on Dynamite was just bizarre and felt like another missed opportunity to really make a moment going into this match, and they didn't do it. It makes me wonder whether the plan initially was for them to return at Wembley Stadium. Like, for example... You know, who are your partners going to be? They come out, then the match gets started. Let's also not forget that mm-hmm. large portions of Stadium Stampede do get taped ahead of time because it does happen usually in the bowels of the stadium and in other areas. It's not just going to be True. around the ringside area. So it kind of made me believe like that is how they were planning to do their return. If not, and if they were always planned to return on the Go Home Dynamite, then it really does make me believe that there might be some surprises at all in of named you know, wrestlers showing up, um, people who are not signed to WWE, but could debut in AEW. And there's really two names that come to the top of my mind for that. I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I just want to mention it since we're talking about their return. One, I mean, as unbelievable as it sounds, would be Goldberg, right? Um, (laughs) Maybe MJF retains in the main event and they do like a Jewish thing where, you know, I mean, I don't know. They, They both... I'm just saying MJF talks about it all the time and and Goldberg shows up and it's just a big moment on the show. And then we on Dynamite, you know, hey, I've heard you talking about how you're this and you're that. Well, you have to get through me. And like they put MJF over Goldberg either at All Out or the next pay-per-view. I I don't know. I don't really know that Goldberg makes sense. I got to be honest with you. Just one name that's in my head. The other name is Mercedes Monet, who has been radio silent since Mm -hmm. she injured her ankle when she was supposed to win the NJPW Strong Women's title. Um, we haven't heard shit from her at all. You know, I don't think she's cleared yet, but you don't need to be cleared to walk out of a ramp and challenge, you know, whoever ends up uh, winning or retaining the AEW Women's Championship. You build that for the next major show, not all out, but whatever they do, their next um, quarterly pay-per-view. So there are options. There could be no returns and no debuts, but it just felt like if you're going to do this on the go-home, then there's probably a reason for that because you have something on the main show. So I just wanted to put that out there before we went ahead and picked this match. In terms of picking the match, though, Chris, look, um, it's it's interesting. Blackpool Combat Club, Santana and Ortiz, that's a lot of violence there. And on the other side, you have Eddie Kingston, who, I mean, is incredible. And the guy just does not get... I, people have been praising him a lot over the last, let's say, two years, he still doesn't get enough credit for how great he is as a storyteller, how great he is on the mic, the passion, the way he just treats everything like it's real. I love Eddie Kingston so much, but you have him, you have Orange Cassidy, you have best friends, you have Penta. I mean, Chuck or Trent, they can take the fall, like they can lose the match. And you have Blackpool Combat Club coming off losing blood and guts to the elite. They kind of need a kick in the ass a little bit. So I think it's a great opportunity to have heels win and it's heels that would largely be cheered because they're fan favorites. So I have Blackpool Combat Club, that team of five winning stadium stampede. I have Blackpool Combat Club winning as well, perhaps with a Brian Danielson interference of some kind. Uh, It's actually pretty funny. I I saw a quote going around from um, Eddie King. It was Jim Raw. No, it was uh, Tony Schiavone telling a story about Terry Funk and 
Tony had said on Dynamite or something that Brian Danielson might be the greatest wrestler of all time. And as Tony told the story, Eddie Kingston texted him and a bunch of people like, no, you fucking idiots. Terry Funk is the greatest of all time. <laughs> and so like, I was just thinking back to that with, with Eddie Kingston and Brian Danielson and things you can do here. Eddie Kingston, you're right. He is somebody who should be on Dynamite cutting a promo every single week. Mm-hmm. I mean, this one of the one of my biggest issues with with AEW in general is that, like we said, nothing gets to breathe. Everything is just rushed when you have Boxley, Kingston, all these guys. Just give them a mic for five, ten minutes. Let them go and just really add a lot of tension to a lot of it instead of someone hit somebody with a crowbar and there's a mass of people at the end of dynamite and this is our new match. So mm-hmm. I am looking forward to this. I think it's going to be complete. And I'm curious what kind of soccer type things they, they maybe fit into it doing it at Wembley stadium, but I am going with BCC and Santana and Ortiz. All right, let's move to the trios match. Kenny Omega Hangman Page and Kota Ibushi, the Golden Elite, against Konosuke, Takeshka, Jabe White, and Juice Robinson, Bullet Club Gold, obviously, plus Takeshka. On Collision, White cut a promo on Omega saying the Elite have deceived the world to think that they are the best of Bullet Club when it's actually Bullet Club Gold that's on top. Juice then cut a manic promo about attacking Omega. His talking style, it's growing on me, but it is kind of grating, I will say. I said this last week, but... While this is an appropriate storyline for a show like All In, the match feels way too rushed and random given how prominent of a feud it could have been with a more significant build, if that makes sense. So then we go to Dynamite and we had the Elite, including the Young Bucks, against Juice and the Guns. This opened the show, but the match never started because the Elite attacked the heels on the ramp. Juice at one point threw a haymaker at Rick Knox in what I can only consider to be a babyface turn and one of the greatest <laughs> moments in AEW history. I, I mean, it was incredible. I loved it. I popped so freaking hard. I stood up. We needed that. I, I, it was incredible. Maybe the best moment of the entire show. Uh, the guns then hit 310 to Yuma on one of the Jacksons. Then Omega countered White and drilled him with V-Trigger. Takeshka eventually came in to give the heels an advantage. FTR came out and even the sides. Takeshka escaped one-winged angel and that ended the extended segment. This was hot, no doubt. And I preferred it to the booked trios match that was scheduled to start Dynamite. It also gave additional build to Omega Takeshka, which I have to presume, based on all of this booking, we're going to get the six man here at all in. And then I hope we're going to get Omega Takeshka one on one at all out, because all you need is one week of build. That is a legitimate storyline that's already been created. And that does give you a really interesting option when you're guessing who's going to win this match because normally you would just say, oh, well, clearly it's going to be the baby faces. It's Omega, it's Abushi, and it's Hangman, like the three most over guys that they have. Uh, sorry, two of the most over guys that they have, Omega and Page, and a freelancer in Abushi who is a huge fan favorite. But then if you consider that the fact that, you know, White and Robinson have basically lost everything of decency that they've been involved in and Takeshka really shouldn't be losing to Omega before he actually loses to Omega one-on-one. I kind of look at this and say, Chris, is there a real case for the heels winning this match? I think there is. I think there is, um, unless you think Takeshka beats Omega, which I think is very possible as well. Um, You want to get a guy 
to that level. Personally, Takeshka doesn't just it doesn't really do anything for me, but, but mm-hmm. I know he's a very big part of this. But you're right. This idea of the golden elite, the ex-Bullet Club people versus Bullet Club gold is like a great story you could have told over like a period of time and gotten a lot of things involved in that. Um, and, and, and coincidentally, at the same time, we've got Finn Balor and Cody feuding over in WWE. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to go with the faces here. I think, you, again, you kind of you want Kenny Omega mm-hmm. as a winner on, on your biggest show ever. But then I think even a week later, we could do Takeshka Omega at All Out and Takeshka gets the singles win. So that's my pick. Also, by the way, the Guns entrance, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Juice Robinson being a part of that makes it even better. Like, I love that entrance. It is a top five entrance in all of wrestling right now. It's so cool. I mean, I disagree with it being top five with many men when they play the 50 Cent song. Then I could make an argue, you could make an argument that it's a top five entrance in wrestling. But with their normal music, yeah. for me, it's just a nice looking entrance. I don't think it's anything that special. But I do agree that visually it is cool. No question about that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, on a show like this, so it, it's tough, right? Because what did I say earlier? It feels kind of like it's a house show card. Um if it was a house show card, then the baby faces win this. Like there's no need whatsoever for uh, heels to win any kind of match like this because it doesn't actually matter in the grand scheme. But even though in many ways it feels like a house show card, it's actually not a house show card. And already, just going back on what we've already talked about, I've picked Darby Allen and Sting to win. I've picked the Acclaimed to win their titles. And there's going to be some more baby faces later that I'm choosing. I think I'm actually going to take the heels here you know, it's probably the wrong pick. I guess if there's odds out there for this match that Omega, Page, and Ibushi are heavily favored because they would get a huge crowd pop for winning. There's just something kind of inside me that that is forcing me to pick the heels. So I think that's what's going to happen. I'm going to pick the heels and maybe we get Takeshka Omega at All Out. I think that makes all the sense in the world. And the best way to lead into that match is by having the heels win this first. So that is my pick. Let's go ahead. Sorry. This is well, real quick. This is a spot where if, if I could have redone this card in certain ways, I would have had Kenny Omega versus Jay White as a singles match. Like, like in terms, like I've said many times, Jay White since coming to AEW has just really been a letdown because they haven't let him shine. And this would have been a great spot to do it on what you want to be your biggest showcase card. You could get rid of the trios tag match doesn't need to be on this. Some other things. I, th- there aren't as many one versus one. I can't believe this match is happening type of things. And instead, we've got a lot of really good dudes put into the six-man tag instead of breaking them out long. I actually would have preferred Omega and Hangman against Jay and Juice with no Takeshka and no Abushi. I love Abushi. I love Takeshka too. Very talented. But we have the Omega and Hangman, the old team, Jay White and Juice, the current yeah. team. There's history and story there that they could tell. And then you can use Takeshka as the guy who interferes in the match, gives the heels the win, and then Omega fights Takeshka at All Out. And that would have been super clean. Yes, Omega J. White one-on-one, that would have been awesome. But you really need to build that. That's a match that should be for the AEW world title. That doesn't necessarily you know, need to be in a situation like this for the biggest wrestling event in history just because they're in Wembley Stadium. So I'd have done tag team instead of uh, trios. But still, this is going to be a great match. And it does have a chance to legitimately steal the show. Okay, let's move on to Chris Jericho against Will Ospreay. On Dynamite, JAS confronted Sammy Guevara for getting Jericho's back last week. Sammy said 
Being there for your friends when they are wrong is part of friendship. They suggested Jericho would not be there for him when he needs him. Then we got a contract signing for the match. Osprey came out with Don Callis. Sammy had Chris's back. There was also security in the ring. Callis cut a promo trying to explain the storyline, but I'll tell you that was quite forced. Osprey then cut a real passionate promo saying once he beats Jericho, he'll be the only man to have beaten Jericho, Omega, and Kazuchika Okada inside of a few months. Perfect timing because his New Japan contract comes up later this year. Osprey said he's better than the best in AEW, and then he signed the contract. Jericho took credit for Osprey's career, saying he convinced him to tone down his style so he didn't end up like his idol Dynamite Kid. Jericho said All In was bigger than any WrestleMania or anything in the Tokyo Dome. Let's not forget, it is the biggest wrestling event in history. Then it got hot with security. Maybe for the first time in wrestling history, they successfully separated them without many punches being thrown to end the segment without a full brawl happening. Now, the most interesting part of this segment was Osprey talking about his contract. The long assumption has been he's just going to resign with New Japan and continue to work AEW periodically as he has been. He's really right now in New Japan set up to be like the number one gaijin and and basically run that entire promotion. Almost, I don't want to say be their Roman Reigns because that's Kazuchika Okada, but like the Seth Rollins or better over there. But mentioning his contract on AEW TV, though he did look into the camera, so it's possible he was talking to New Japan and Kayfabe, but then calling out guys like Brian Danielson and CM Punk makes me think it's possible that maybe they worked something out and he's going to do a 50-50 contract or a 75-25, something more than being a New Japan talent who also does some dates with AEW. And if that does happen, I mean, that'd be massive for AEW because Osprey's basically the best wrestler in the world right now. He's in that top five conversation along with Kazuchika Okada, Brian Danielson, Kenny Omega. I mean, you can certainly throw Gunther in there, you know, Roman Reigns differently, but Roman Reigns is up there as well. Point is, it would be a huge signing. But anyway, let's go back to this. In terms of the match build, they hit on some decent points. Osprey's promo mostly delivered. It did come across a bit cartoonish to me, the way he got so crazy amped up out of nowhere. And he put on that whole like Chav act for a, a Brit when he does not normally speak like that. That's not the way he cuts promos in New Japan. Jericho's promo also felt really, really try hard, especially because he repeated himself a few times. And then Callus's explanation, as I said, it was shit. But again, the goal was to hype the match. And they definitely hyped the match way more on Dynamite than it felt coming into Dynamite. And that's what matters. It's a go-home show. That's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. They achieved that. This was the best thing on Dynamite. And this might have been the best build or go-home segment for anything on this card. Mm. I love this. Come on. Wait, wait. Hold on. MJF and Adam Cole. Maybe other than MJF and Adam Cole. That's by far the best. I mean, but they, like they didn't, it didn't go up a level at the end of the show. I'm saying like, like this, okay. this okay. jumped up into a level. Got it. Like, like this was, this segment right here is what so many AEW storylines need and don't get into just a little bit of what's the relationship between these people and why is this happening and what is their past as opposed to we're just going to wrestle. I'm going to prove I'm the better wrestler or whatever, you know, like Osprey talking about being from England and what it means to be at Wembley and, and 
this is his moment, bruv. And he's not going to let Jericho take that away. And then Jericho being like, you owe me for all this success. I loved it. I absolutely loved everything about this. And it was just, there was a level of kayfabe mixed with real that it felt like this. It, it, it made this feel like this was a big deal to both these guys. That it wasn't just a match, but it was a big match for both of them and what it means for them in their careers. And a lot more matches on this card needed that. I, I thought this was terrific. I don't need Callis in there. I don't need Sammy Guevara in there or any of that. Just Osprey and Jericho, the two of them together. Really, really good stuff. It, it felt, this feels like such a bigger match now going in than it did before that segment. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It feels way bigger going in than it did before. It still, though, to me, feels like it's just something they put on the card. Like, there are legitimate storyline reasons for this happening. Like the storyline they're telling us that they were going to fight a couple years ago and then the pandemic happened and then Jericho with the phone call. But again, we learned all of that like here on the Go Home Show. Had they built this out, had they done the the Callus segment three weeks ago instead of last week, had Osprey been around AEW and then like maybe been seen with Callus at one point and you're wondering what's happening there, and then this happens, then okay, it all comes together, but Callis is not his manager. Just like Callis is not the manager of Bullet Club Gold nope. either. Uh, so it they just used Callis as a way to like make these two storylines come together for this show when otherwise he wasn't really needed for it. Now, don't get me wrong. They did tell a long story with Jericho and Callis. No doubt about that. But Osprey was not part of that. And there was no part during that where Callis said, hey, Chris, you know, you're getting older. You should tone it down. And Chris is like, you know, I did tell Will Ospreay to tone it down. Maybe I should take my own advice. And then you play into it. Like, they could have done so many things to connect this, but they ultimately just did it. Now, in terms of a prediction, let me just state this very clearly. There's a lot of things that can happen on All In. The one thing that should not, under any circumstances, happen on this show is Chris Jericho beating Will Ospreay. I will lose my fucking mind. So I have to believe Tony Khan is smart enough to know that it's Osprey. It's London. I mean, it's his home country. I don't know if it's his hometown. I'd have to check, but that's his spot. It's Wembley stadium. He's the younger guy. He is obviously the much higher ceiling in present day. Jericho is already a hall of famer and a legend. This is the spot where Osprey should be going over Jericho to huge fanfare. And one of the biggest responses, maybe the biggest response, just because he is a Brit, um, but on the entire all-in card, this has a chance to be a big moment. I don't think the match is going to be good. We've seen Jericho recently against Adam Cole and some others where it really doesn't work. Their false count anywhere was good, but the in-ring stuff with Jericho, it's just falling off a cliff. It's understandable. The guy's getting older, but Osprey could definitely carry him to a great match here. And it could, I don't think it's going to steal the show, but it could be a bright spot, but Osprey winning in Wembley Stadium, that's going to be a career moment for him, especially beating a legend like Chris Jericho. So, yeah, that's my pick, Will Ospreay. I looked it up. Osprey is from a town called Havering at Bower, uh, which is in the outlying settlements of Greater London. Okay, so suburbs or something. Pretty, pretty close. Yeah, cool. Um, this, I, I don't expect this to be a great match, but I do expect it to be a great moment. And the one thing with WWE is they always try to get the moments right. You know, the, the thing you're going to remember from Jericho Osprey is Osprey 
the pin and celebrating in front of Wembley Stadium. You know, like that. That's that's the thing. I'm picking Osprey here as well. The general story here of like I'm the greatest wrestler, and you used to be the greatest wrestler. Uh, you know, younger guy versus older guy. It, it, it's a very simple classic story you can tell, and I thought they did a really good job to, to set it up. You're right. Jericho cannot win this match. I think Jericho knows that. So hopefully everything turns out the way it should. You would think he knows that. And yeah, the idea of like Osprey on the top rope with the Union Jack, you know, that's that's such a yeah. possibly incredible picture. You got to go with him. No question about it. Let's move to the real world championship. CM Punk against Samoa Joe. On Collision, Joe was scheduled for a match against an obviously fake masked wrestler. And this was supposed to open. Uh, that wrestler attacked Joe from the jump and laid him out with go to sleep. And of course, it was Punk who accepted the challenge officially. Other than Joe looking stupid for not realizing what was clearly about to happen to him, it was a pretty hot start to a collision on Saturday. And look, Chris, that's all there really is. But I maintain that this entire real world championship storyline with Punk, it is flat out absurd. The fact that there's two title matches on the show, like world title matches, is nonsensical when one is that when one of them is not real. And it's not like there's a built-in storyline like I thought there was going to be where the winners are scheduled to fight each other the next week at All Out to determine the actual world champion. So that means Punk is going to continue carrying this title at least until the next pay-per-view, mean you know, after All All Out, whatever the next one is down the line, which means another like 3 or 4 months of this bullshit. Now, that maybe MJF goes over to Collision and they actually fight on TV. I don't think that's going to happen. From a kayfabe standpoint, Punk being allowed to carry the title and defend it on pay-per-view makes Tony Khan look like an idiot for sanctioning it. I'm talking about in kayfabe here. And this is a match, by the way, Joe and Punk, we just saw in the Owen with Punk beating Joe. Was it a good match? Yes. Was it so good that I needed to see it again? Absolutely not. By the way, Joe also holds a title already. The ROH Television Championship, not even a factor in this at all. Could they really have not like saved what they were doing with the Ricky Starks feud and done Punk and Starks in London? You mentioned earlier about getting Jack Perry on the card. You get Starks on this card, this biggest wrestling event in history. He's in a kayfabe suspension. Not going to be on this, not going to be all out. So as you can tell, Really not a fan of what they're doing here. And this has nothing to do with my individual thoughts on CM Punk, which I expressed last week and obviously have expressed previously on the podcast. Now, in terms of the match, let me tell you this right now, they are not giving the real world championship to Samoa Joe because that would make even less sense than what they're already doing. So CM Punk will retain. He'll, he'll be able to continue calling himself by that name and he'll continue to hold the championship with the X on it. My whole thing is I, I'm very surprised they went with real world championship because it just instantly sounds like it's a championship on the real world. And it, unless <laughs> I've missed it, I'm kind of surprised the Miz hasn't made a comment about it yet. Yeah. Uh, so that's that. But you're right, because he has this title, you know, he's going to hold it until he fights MJF. So the pick is CM Punk, obviously, here. And this, again, comes back to, like, planning things out and not rushing things. CM Punk, Samoa Joe, that was an Owen semifinal, right? Because it was Starks, Punk in yes, the final. So correct. it was like, you finally did Punk, Samoa Joe, the match fans always wanted, but it was, it was, I think it was in Canada and it was a semifinal and it was like, this should have been the first Punk Joe match. Like if this is what, you know, if this was what the, the thing was. So exactly I, right. I, 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 
things keep changing. It'll be a fine match. I'm looking forward to it. I'm punk, you know, whatever you think of him, the dude's a, a megastar. He needs to be on this. He's, he's one sure. of the biggest guys in the company. Sure. And obviously should be on this card and, and, and do this. So, yeah, the, the picks punk and, you know, for, for the wrestling fans who remember the Ring of Honor days, it'll be fun. But outside of that, we'll see. We'll see if Ricky Starks makes a run in here or, or, or try something. I, I don't know. So we'll see. Let's move to the Tag Team Championship FTR Young Bucks 3. On Dynamite, they had a face-off interview segment with Renee. Dax Harwood starts talking about his daughter and his family, his typical bullshit. So Matt Jackson cuts him off. He makes fun of him and says that they're going to go down as the best tag team in history, while FTR is going to go down as a footnote as a team that they named on their YouTube show. Honestly, great individual line right there. Uh, This was one of few segments on Dynamite that for me, did not add intensity or excitement to the all-in match. FTR was actually terrible here. Cash Wheeler is always bad on the mic, better than he is behind the wheel. And Dax Harwood basically flubbed his key lines. It was a nothing burger for me, more of the same. I guess, hey, at least it wasn't a shoot. Get it? Uh, Of course, look, I say all of that as this comes off big news last week of Wheeler being arrested for allegedly pulling a gun during a road rage incident. To quote the dude, yeah, waving the fucking gun around? What an idiot. Uh, Wheeler bonded out. He does not have a travel restriction. So he's going to be at all in, and this match is going to go down. Now, you know, we can get into a prediction, but do you have anything on this interview segment you want to talk about? No, not particularly. I I think you kind of hit on it. This is a a thing that was kind of, I know thrown together late. So they're trying to add some stuff to it. It's been very just inconsistent. I think. Yeah. To do a rubber match in this rivalry. I mean, this should be a huge build going into it and they're both baby faces and it's kind of like a shrug. Okay. Well, we'll fight each other in this, by the way, this matters a lot because we really have this rivalry, but you're not feeling it. I don't feel the rivalry that we know actually exists between them in kayfabe. This is a really interesting. Like, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. This is where the the interview segment, like the idea works, but this is a segment where you get the Young Bucks and FTR just in the ring doing a promo in front of the crowd back and forth at each other. That just, you don't get very much in AEW, I think. And it's just, that's something that would have added to that intensity. They do a lot of interviews for this stuff and a lot of them are good and we'll get to some more later, but there's not enough promos in the ring for me to up that intensity. The way this really could have popped, okay, is if they did not bring CM Punk to Collision one week and FTR was in the ring, they have a match, they finish up, they're cutting a promo and the Young Bucks come out. And you're like, holy shit, the Young Bucks are on Collision? And like, you don't yet realize that Punk's not gonna be there, so it works, it's fine, right? But they come out on Collision and the crowd is amped up for it and then they do the promo battle that you're talking about. And then you're like, holy shit, this thing is hot. It's not hot, there's no heat going into it. Look. Is a certain someone going to give this five stars? Yes. It's probably going to be an exceptional wrestling match. I have almost zero doubt about it because these two are exceptional tag teams. I may not be a Young Bucks fan. I appreciate when they really get into it, what they can do in the ring. But the prediction for this, you know, being able to pick this match, it's pretty damn difficult, I will say. My thought when Collision started was that it seemed weird to me that the trios titles and tag team titles were both on that brand. The way I figured that AEW should handle it is that the trios are on one brand and the tag team titles are on another brand. In fact, it's probably a lesson WWE could learn from rather than have two exact sets of tag team titles 
do a six-man title and do a tag team title. That would differentiate stuff between the two brands. I digress. So I've always thought that was interesting. So therefore, I was like, oh, well, maybe the Young Bucks will win it here. But then they started doing the acclaimed storyline. And I was like, well, if the acclaimed are going to win the trio's titles, then maybe FTR just retains and that's how it goes. But then (laughs) Cash Wheeler got arrested uh, for waving the gun around uh, in a road rage incident. And you're like, well, it's possible that he actually faces consequences for that. The last thing you would really want would be for your tag team champions to have the belts around their waist, FTR to have the belts around their waist, and something like that to happen. So my prediction is the Young Bucks actually win the tag team titles, bring them over, quote unquote, to Dynamite. But the unfortunate part about this is I actually don't care who wins. And there's some matches where I care. Clearly, I really cared that Osprey wins that match. Clearly, um, what's another one I'm trying to think of? Blackpool Combat Club. I said they absolutely need to win that match. No question about it. Here, like it's like, all right, I'm going to get a good match. It'll pop the fans. But does the winning team matter? Not based on current storylines. No, it doesn't. That That's a good point. It doesn't feel like a championship feud. It just feels like we, you know, we're two of the best. Let's do it again type of feud. Mm-hmm. And your point about taking the belts over and whatnot, it is weird. Like if the Young Bucks win, you're not going to have the tag team championships on collision, you know? So like, mm-hmm. I, I don't, unless MJF and Cole win the ROH titles and those potentially spend some time over there, but MJF's usually on Dynamite too. So I'm not sure about all of that, but again, with this being the big show, I think we get a lot of moments here that highlight the AEW foundational pieces, the pillars and whatnot. And those are a lot of the guys standing tall at the end. That includes uh, Kenny Omega, the boot, uh, Kenny Omega and maybe Hangman at a page standing tall, winning their match. That's Moxley standing tall for Blackpool Combat Club winning theirs. Mm-hmm. That's Jack Perry beating Hook. And that is the Young Bucks beating FTR here as well. Now, it, they could win the titles and then immediately lose them. We've seen that before. Right. So I think it's all on the table here. I think in this moment, kind of, this will be, theoretically, this is the biggest match of the Young Bucks' career. Legendary tag team. They will have never been on a stage like this before. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you want them to have that moment on a scene like that. I agree with that. I think this is the appropriate moment for them to have. Yeah, that's true. Uh, let's move on to the women's championship. Hikaru Shida defending against Britt Baker, Tony Storm, and Soraya in a fatal four-way. On Rampage, Shida and Sky Blue fought Storm and Ruby Soho. This was the main event, which was appropriate given the women in the match. It was actually a solid 10 minutes for a change, going both ways. Uh, Sky hit Code Blue for a broken fall. Ruby sprayed her in the face. Tony hit the hip attack for a broken fall. Soraya did the worst trip I've ever seen in ring on Shida, but Shida countered no future into a jackknife cover for the win. The outcasts immediately attacked, of course, with Baker making the save, of course. Uh, sarcasm aside, though, it was actually a really good pull-apart brawl and overall a solid segment to kind of build towards this match. And Storm had a good promo on Collision, saying the four of them are going to fight next week. Because of that, there was actually no direct build for the match on Dynamite. Again, that's fine because apparently they were going to give them a lot of time on the Collision episode in a tag team match, the two baby faces and the two heels in the Fatal 4-Way, to go head-to-head. And one presumes once that is over, they'll do a brawl or 
promos or whatever, and that'll build into the women's fatal four-way. Still though, they didn't mention it on the Go Home Dynamite, which they really should have. So look, I said earlier that to me, this match should have been one-on-one. It should have been Sheeta against Tony Storm. Um, they did the title change on TV kind of just to do a title change. It didn't make much sense, nor was there any real reason to do it. And going into this match, I look at the four women and it's just like, I don't, it's it's probably the most confused I am about what's actually going to happen on the show because you can really make cases for all of them. She does the champion retaining it fine. She's a baby face. The crowd will cheer for her. You know, it probably makes the most sense. Britt Baker, she's the top woman in the division, like it or not. And this is the biggest wrestling event in history. So we've already seen what Tony Khan has done with Britt from her initial title run to winning the Owen. You could say, well, then he's clearly just going to put the title back on Britt here, at least for a short period of time, because it's the biggest show ever. And he wants her to have that moment. Tony Storm, she might be from New Zealand, but she has a long history in the United Kingdom. Obviously, she was in NXT UK. She wrestled for Progress in London. So she has a built-in fan base there. She's also undergoing a huge character shift that we're seeing on TV, but she's a heel. And then you have Soraya, who's the biggest international name, I guess, in the match, although not under that name, technically, it would be under Paige, but the biggest international face uh, in this match. Yet her entire AEW career to this point has been what I would consider at least a massive disappointment, but maybe they use this four-way as a way for her to win a title and do it under shenanigans, and then she drops it down the line. So my point is, Chris, any of these women could win this match, and it would make sense. Um, Or at least you could explain it out as a reason. I don't know what the answer is going to be. What I can tell you, though, is I really don't think Sheeta holding on to the title, while I like her and fans love her, I don't know what it really does for AEW. Like, they don't really feature her when she's the champion, at least as not as much as they do Britt or Tony when she's had the title. And Tony did talk about becoming the first three-time AEW Women's Champion on the Go Home Dynamite. There was a very quick promo that they did, like a, a package to kind of build into this. So I do think what makes the most sense is a babyface winning this match. But in terms of a prediction, I'm going to pick Storm to win the title here. You're. This is probably the hardest match to pick. You're right. Every single person could make a case here. I think I'm going to go with Soraya because kind of like Tony Storm, but she will be a face here. You know, like it's, it's going to be a massive. Right. I did forget to mention that entire part of it. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. Yeah. She's, yeah, she's from the United Kingdom. So another hometown, you do it here. Maybe she doesn't hold the title for a while, but this is kind of like the climactic. She came all the way back and got here and got this moment. Right. And maybe she loses the title not long after that. But but I, I, again, I keep coming into this thinking, like, what are ways AEW can create moments? Mm-hmm. That's what you want from this show. And so I, I, I that's my pick. I don't feel confident in it, but that's my pick. I can also see Britt Baker, again, like one of the pillars, so mm-hmm. to speak, you know, get, getting that as well. And Jamie Hayter, wish she could be here. I Last I saw on her, they just said she wouldn't be back for all in. So I don't think she's going to be back until 2024 is what they said, actually. Okay, then then maybe maybe not, because you still want to do the Britt Baker, Jamie Hader feud at some point. So, right. uh, I'll go Soraya, but uh, you're right. Could could really be any one of these people. I did forget to mention, I mean, Soraya, she's from Norwich, England, which is like, I don't know exactly, 150 miles, something like that from London. So, you know, similar to what we were saying earlier about Osprey, like they could do that, but. 
I don't know, man. I just, I don't think Soraya has done well enough in the ring where you want to strap her up with the championship. But again, in a four-way situation, if you're going to do it, you do it like this. You don't have her just pin Sheeta clean or pin Britt Baker clean or something like that. You do it where someone gets the win. Like maybe what, maybe the booking to your, to what you're saying, maybe the booking is like Sheeta's beaten down and Storm's covering her and Soraya throws her away and pins her. And then you get tension within the, the outcasts. There are interesting things that they can do. And maybe there is a purposeful reason why two people from the same group are in this match other than the value of their names. So we'll find out. I, I got to say, I'm actually kind of interested in the booking, even if I don't care much about the match going in, just because of what we just talked about. So with that, let's get to both the main event and the opening match of AEW All In London, the biggest wrestling event in history. Uh, we have the ROH Tag Team Championships, Aussie Open, defending against MJF and Adam Cole in zero hour. And then the AEW Championship, MJF against Adam Cole. Lots to talk about here, so let's go ahead and get into it. On Dynamite, MJF and Cole sat down with Renee Paquette separately for interviews. MJF asked London fans to make it the loudest main event in sports history. He promised to buy everyone a pint, and then under his breath, said he'd make that Mark Tony Khan pay for them. MJF then put himself over for main eventing the biggest show in wrestling history. Then he name-dropped literally everyone from Bruno Sammartino and Hulk Hogan to The Rock and The Undertaker. Renee showed footage of cracks in the MJF-Cole relationship. MJF said it's not a work that he's never had a friend, crediting Cole for being his brother. He asked fans to be vulnerable with him, promising they will be rewarded. There were no heelish parts to this, so the goal was for MJF to come off completely genuine, whether he means it or not, we're supposed to believe that going into the show. MJF, I thought was awesome here, Chris. Other than the whole, please cheer as loud as you can for us deal, which came across, I gotta tell you, kind of pathetic to me, like on AEW's behalf. Other than that, this was the type of acting that we praise WWE for getting from Jey Uso and Roman Reigns. Uh, completely believable filled with his usual snark and snide comments, so it didn't feel like it was fake. Probably one of the best individual points in this entire MJF Adam Cole program was this MJF part of the interview. And I do believe it was meant, at least in the moment, to make us think it was a full babyface turn. Now, whether he keeps babyface or not on Sunday, that remains to be seen, but that's at least how it seemed to me right here. This is one of the best storylines AEW has ever done. I agree. Without a doubt. Top two, I think. Week to week, the entertainment, the work of the guys involved, the, the fun, just doing different things. And it's made for a fascinating dynamic going in because this is not a blood feud, a grudge match. Uh, oh my God, I can't wait to see these guys start beating the crap out of each other. Like for all the comparisons that, you know, Adam Cole has, has made and talked about with WrestleMania 17, Rock and Austin, if I recall correctly, they were both both basically baby faces, but they hated each other. You know, the whole mm -hmm. build to that was Deborah was involved. They're, they're, they're stunning and rock bottoming each other. And what's it going to be like when they get in the ring at WrestleMania? This is just totally different. And it's, it's one of the best, stories they've ever done, but it's also a weird way to go into your biggest show of all time where you don't have that. So uh, it's just, it's just different. 
like like I, I've I've enjoyed every part of this. It just makes for a different feeling going into this main event, especially when you have the the pre-show situation. Yeah, no doubt. So the second half, uh, Cole later said MJF helped him find the real Adam Cole again. He didn't like that Renee showed footage of Cole agreeing with Roderick Strong that MJF is a maniac. At one point, uh, considered using the title on him in the ring, and then another clip where he kept his eyes focused on the title while he was ho- uh, hugging uh, MJF. I almost said holding, I guess. Technically, a hug is a hold, so it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, Cole walked out of the interview yelling that it shouldn't be so hard to understand that they are friends. He screamed into the camera, there are no issues with me and Max, none. Later backstage, Strong was with the kingdom saying, we would find out the real MJF and the real Cole once all in ended on Sunday. So clearly, we're being led to believe that MJF is being genuine and Cole is playing him. The whole real Adam Cole line is supposed to indicate to us that he's a heel, the guy who was the leader of Undisputed Era and not the goody two-shoes babyface who came back to AEW as a feel-good story off the concussion, getting all the fanfare and all that type of shit. Now, will that be the case come Sunday? More on that in a minute. I thought Cole was very solid here. I didn't find it to be nearly as good as what MJF did probably like 20 minutes earlier in the show. Yeah, I'd agree with that. The MJF one was better, but but it was an interesting approach to take that, to go into both these guys being like, what's going on with this relationship really? So uh, Renee was great in both of them. But she yeah, was. MJF was better. You could make an argument Renee was the MVP of the show, actually. She, she was really freaking good uh, on Dynamite. Yeah. So then... Dynamite ends with the ROH tag team titles on the line. Aussie Open against the Hardys. We mentioned this way, way, way earlier in the show. Uh, The champions hit an assisted elevated cutter on Jeff Hardy, pinning him for the win in what was a relatively short match. After the bell, they repeated that we're not going to get hit by the double clothesline. We're not going to get hit by the kangaroo kick. MJF and Adam Cole did a stare down with them. They brawled. Um, They got them out of the ring. They both tried to do the double clothesline and kangaroo kick and failed on both. And then MJF tried to super kick Kyle Fletcher, but he dodged out of the way and Cole caught MJF super kick, you know, right at his chest, basically. So they start staring down. MJF MJF caught Cole's kick. Sorry, yes. MJF caught Cole's super kick uh, right in his chest. Um, So then they get into a stare down with each other. MJF holds the AEW title right in Cole's face. Cole offers a hand instead. MJF bumped his shoulder and completely blew past him and puts on the dynamite diamond ring. But instead of doing anything, and Cole just kept his back to him the entire time, and Cole looked kind of angry in that moment, uh, they both turned around, hugged, and dapped up. And that was it. It was the end of the segment. Uh, I should note that Dynamite actually got a five-minute overrun on purpose from uh, TBS, which it never usually does. But it was specifically for this moment. So look... um, There are literally, Chris, 12 different outcomes. I actually counted. There are 12 different (laughs) outcomes that are possible at All In. Consider this, okay? They can win or lose the ROH tag team titles. They can split with MJF turning, or they can split with Cole turning, or they cannot split at all at any point during the entire show. MJF can then retain the title, or Cole can win the title. So if you mix and match, all those different possibilities because they can work within each other in any combination. Then you get 12 different booking options. And look, I give AEW a lot of shit for its creative. 
And you know what? Deservingly so, especially in 2023, they've been struggling. But there is no doubt, and you kind of uh, ruined what I was going to say earlier, this is one of the top storylines in the history of the company and one of the best jobs from a booking standpoint they have done to build a really big match at a really big pay-per-view. I think it's been fantastic. I did note last week that the two prior weeks, to me, the comedy was an eye roll and it really got away from what it was doing previously in the build of their relationship. They completely got back to that on the go home dynamite. That was good. And now going into this match, you know, this is one of those situations where it's like, why do you spend $50 for a pay-per-view? It's because ideally there's a lot on the card that you want to see. This is one of those situations where if I was a normal fan, uh, I'd probably be buying it anyway because it is indeed the biggest wrestling uh, event in history. But I would buy this pay-per-view for this match. That's pretty much what I'm trying to say. And going into mm-hmm. the show, we'll give our predictions in a moment. I really think they've knocked this out of the park. Completely agree. I, I kind of said my piece on this already, but you've got two of the the, the the two guys you want to kind of be your face of the company headlining your biggest show ever. And people are loving it. Like that's exactly what you have to do to get to this point. And, and, and they did it. And there are so many possibilities. Again, it's different than most main event feuds. But part of that is there's so many different options here. Personally, I don't like opening the show with, I, I don't like them being in the tag team match, mm-hmm. basically. I, I think having your main event wrestlers on your pre-show in a tag team match for a third tier promotion is bizarre. And it changes that moment when each of them come out for the final match. Let me, you know, it, it won't be like, yeah, let me stop you there. Cause that's a good point. And I want to talk about that before we talk about the rest. If they wanted to do this storyline, it should have been the main event of dynamite. Yeah. Because they yeah. could have still done what happened after the Hardys match with them challenging for the titles. They would have popped a huge rating for dynamite. Okay. And whatever angle or whatever booking they're going to do, you're going to do that at whatever time noon Eastern There's people who are barely perhaps on the weekend going to be able to get in their chairs or on their couch or whatever the case for the start of the main show. And you're going to open zero hour with that. I agree with you in that. I I don't love the idea of them challenging for the titles at all. But let's remember, they already challenged for the AEW tag team title. So it's like, well, if they did that, why can't they do this? Um, So I would have liked that to have been the dynamite main event. You give that you know, 20 minutes, plus then you give them the five-minute overrun. They do the match, whatever they're going to do at All In happens on Dynamite, and then you do the same end segment, and that is your go-home moment. The last thing that you see, will they, won't they? Who's going to turn? Is nobody going to turn? That brings you in, and now you're anticipating that from the second All In starts until the very end of the show. Instead, you're right. They're starting the show with their two biggest names and then saying to you, oh, by the way, you're also going to see them like five and a half hours later. Yeah. And so it's, you know, I don't. They're not going to turn on each other in the pre-show. I doubt it. All right. You know, so okay. whatever happens in that first match, you don't think that you, you think it's possible? I think I know you like laid out the 12 options. But well, like, I again. Yeah. So the so that's the point. I can't. That's the point. Literally everything is po- like I laid out the 12 different options. I did not include when a turn might happen, which could be early 
or could be late. I guess that means there's 24 actual options that there can be. Um, but I, why are they doing the match in zero hour? There has to be a reason right. for that. So it's gonna be one. I, of, it's gonna be one of two things. They win the titles, and you're like, oh, they're gonna be friends. They're gonna stay friends. And then, like, let's say Adam Cole turns, they're still champions. But now there's this beef, you know, in the match itself, and Roderick Strong comes out to help, and all that happens. Or they lose the titles. One of them blames the other. There's a turn, and now you know who's the babyface and who's the heel going into the main event. I kind of am leaning towards the latter there. I'm assuming the reason they're on the pre-show match is just to sell more pay-per-views. You know, like like the scene at Wembley will be everywhere, and you'll you'll see these big guys, these big names doing stuff, and they're like, oh, maybe I'll buy that pay-per-view after all because MJF and Cole sold me on it in the pre-show. That's my guess. My guess is it's business reasons. These are the two biggest guys in the company. I believe so. And yeah. you want them on the show as much as possible. So that that's my thought. I I just can't imagine they lose and then one turns on the other in the pre-show and then you have the, the the match later that night. That's that's cramming a lot in all on one show. So what's the purpose of having the match though if you're if there's not going to be an angle though? That's kind of what you're you're kind of saying there would be an angle though in that it's it's either they win and we cheer for them and we go into the main event like we normally are or they lose and you think oh man someone's going to turn on someone in the main event in, t- in terms of yeah. storyline purposes I, I think the main reason you're doing this is just for business purposes just to just to have them out there and say oh yeah look look how good that was i mean i think if it's the business purpose then there needs to be an angle that makes you want to buy the show them just winning the titles or losing the titles isn't really enough of an angle to say oh my god i now need to buy the show to see what happens next there needs to be something that goes Maybe down not. in that moment. And the other problem on top of that, by the way, is who takes the fall if they lose? Cole, I think was, no, MJF took the fall. I think it was against FTR, if memory serves. So do you have Cole take the fall here? Do you have MJF take the fall a second time? Is there a distraction? Does Will Ospreay come out and get involved? Because they're part of uh, United Empire. Does Roderick Strong and the Kingdom, do they get involved? It's... You know, I, I don't I, I don't know how to phrase this, but like part of what makes wrestling great is when you know what's going to happen and then it happens or you think you know what's going to happen and then you get swerved. Going into something with no idea of what's going to happen is not generally the way wrestling is booked. And that's kind of how I feel going right. into this card. I'm not saying that's bad, but it is very different. It, it, because what that does is it makes you think about the booking as a booker instead of a fan. Right. Because you're thinking, oh, if this happens. How is Tony Khan is going to do this? Later. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. As, a, as opposed to I just want to be invested in these guys. If they lose, if one of them takes a pin, that means by the end of the day, they will either have both been pinned or someone will have taken two pins. Right. So I guess that gets us into our picks here. I was going to say, so maybe that maybe that is kind of telling us they're going to win the titles. Right. I, I, I'm picking <laughs> them to win the titles. I was kind of leaning against it, but now that we're having the conversation in this manner, yeah, I think it makes the most sense because it's the Ring of Honor tag team titles and it's Aussie Open. It's not like it matters, right? They could always relinquish them. Like if there's a turn and they can't team together, then they could just relinquish the titles and they could do a tournament. There's a lot of things that they could do. I think I'm with you, actually. I I originally thought what they were going to do was 
lose that match and that would be like the the onus for them to split. That would be like the pendulum right. upon which a turn came. But the win-loss in a random ROH tag team title match doesn't really matter that much. And if you're going to have Roderick Strong and the Kingdom get involved, that would probably be in the main event. So, yeah, it's weird. Because I feel like what the booking would be, would be if they're going to win the tag team titles. It would be for them to win the titles and then Cole to win the world title because Strong and the Kingdom would come out. They'd help him. Turn on MJF, huge sympathy for MJF as a babyface. Cole walks out with two titles. Cole walks out with the ROH tag team title that, let's not forget, the only reason that match is happening is because Cole cares about Ring of Honor. That's the storyline there. And Cole walks out, he gets everything he wanted. He's a he's a heel, he's detestable, and MJF is a huge babyface, now working back from under to go get his title back. That's a great story. Um, yeah. But I don't know that they're going to end this pay-per-view, the biggest wrestling event in history with MJF losing and MJF not being the guy featured as the champion yeah. on the top rope at the end of the show. Th- that comes into the picks for the final match. Yeah. So, so are you picking them to win? The <laughs> I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. Uh, okay. Yes. Uh, I need to make a decision. I am going to have. This might be the hardest pick in the history of the podcast. I am going to have MJF and Adam Cole win the Ring of Honor tag team titles. Okay. And I think that makes sense. You you have these two guys win. People are watching. Everybody's loving them. Hey, these guys are going to be on later in the show. Oh, maybe I'll buy that pay-per-view. You know, I do think you're not doing a major storyline on your pre-show either. I do think if they win the titles and then one of them does legitimately turn on the other at some point in the main event, People will criticize that because they're going to say, you took these titles, you put them on, now they have to vacate them or now you have to, like, I'm not saying I'm going to criticize it. I'm saying people will uh, because it'll be overbooked. It'll be overbooked and it's, oh, this is pure Vince Russo type. That's what they'll say. It's pure Vince Russo type of book. That's why, that's why you don't put this on the card in the first place. Exactly. That's why you do it on the go home dynamite. (laughs) Exactly. That's why. Yeah. All right. So that's the tag team title match. We're in agreement, surprisingly on that out of the 24 options that we had, um, Okay, so no, so no turn in the pre-show, and they win the tag team titles. So let's get to the main event, the AEW Championship, MJF defending against Cole. Really what you would think should happen here, okay, if you're telling that story, is that Cole turns heel uh, with Roderick Strong and the Kingdom playing a part in that somehow, and then MJF loses the title, and MJF goes, Full baby face, which seems like an impossibility, not longer than two months ago. And Cole is your big heel where he is at his best. We saw it as Undisputed Era in NXT, and we saw it for a period of time in AEW as well. However, I am of the belief, Chris, coming into this show, that there's two things that are important. One, cementing MJF as the guy in AEW. And if you're going to be the guy, you need to be coming out with the title on the biggest wrestling event in history. The second item is that CM Punk remains the real world champion. And if they turn Cole heel, yet MJF prevails, then MJF is going to be a monster babyface. And if you go into that match, Punk, MJF, at whatever the next major pay-per-view is, not counting all out, then Punk is clearly the heel side. 
MJF is clearly the babyface side. And that is a mega match that people, you want to talk about paying $50 to see something? They will pay $50 to see MJF and CM Punk, especially with MJF's you know contract, quote unquote, coming up in 2024, which would only be a couple months away. So that is my pick. MJF retains the AEW title, but Adam Cole does turn heel in the main event at All In. So you have MJF retaining. And, and somehow faces Adam Turncoles. And and somehow okay. MJF walks out as a double champion. <laughs> out of all that, yeah, I guess. Okay. My, my pick is uh late in the match, Tony Khan comes out with the chair and he and MJF start beating up Adam Cole. We <laughs> redo WrestleMania 17. <laughs> the the end of that. I I am so torn here because MJF becoming a babyface is the move. People want to cheer him. His heel run had gotten stale. That's why this has been so refreshing. But don't you want your somewhat homegrown guy to be the face again of the big moment at the end of the show, raising the title for your for your big photo? You do. And but don't you also kind of want a title change in your biggest show someone retaining isn't as meaningful if you want a moment losing a title uh, someone losing a title is a moment yeah so, but not to a heel not to end the show with a heel victory it's so it's so but it's so hard to turn it's so hard to turn heel and lose you know it is you, 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 you well the other option heat. the other option is that mjf turns heel like this, all, it's all a ruse. The entire yeah. the entire time, right. it's been a ruse. MJF turns heel. He hits Cole with the dynamite diamond ring. Roderick Strong, the true best friend, runs out, pulls MJF out of the ring during the cover, punches him in the face. Obviously, the referee would have to be down or something. Uses his cast on him, something like that. Rolls him in the ring. Adam Cole gets the one, two, three. Wins the title as a babyface. So you still get the babyface moment. You still get Cole. Um, uh, you still get a title change, what you're talking about. But then you don't have your guy, MJF, being the one celebrating at the end. That's the give and take. Yeah. My pick is Adam Cole. And it's part of a, a, a heel turn. Maybe it involves Roderick Strong. Ultimately, I think that is the hottest thing you can get coming out of this is a heel Adam Cole and everybody behind MJF. Like that's just, it makes all the sense in the world. It's, if, if this wasn't at Wembley Stadium in front of 80,000 people, I'd say that's the easy call. It's just, it's the fact that this is the 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 biggest event in wrestling history is the whole thing where, like, you, you feel like MJF should be. And by the way, it's been pointed out multiple times. It's so cool that MJF opened the first show, the, the first all-in, kind of started this whole groundswell mm-hmm. of stuff, and now he gets to main event this one. And he said it in interviews, and you know, he thanked Cody Rhodes for giving him a shot and stuff like that. I remember when I saw MJF in on BTE as part of the promotion for the first All In. It was the first time I'd ever seen him. Yeah, with Cody Rhodes. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, this guy's got something. I like it because Cody Rhodes was just hyping him up. He's like, this is MJF. I think he's going to be a star. By the way, and funny Cody, side note. And Cody was right. Funny side note to really go full circle. MJF, while we were taping the podcast today, posted a tweet of a picture of him sitting on the ring at the Nightmare Factory because uh, Dynamite was in Duluth, Georgia on Wednesday. He said, made a pit stop at my old stomping grounds in Atlanta for one last 
in-ring session. It's 2018 all in all over again from the opener to the main event. So he's at Cody Rhodes facility taking a photo, uh, you know, four days or three days, I guess, before the biggest uh, event in wrestling history. Yeah. So that, that that's a nice little touch there. And, and so I'm going to pick Cole. I don't feel great about it. If I, if I was the big picture Booker, I'd want MJF standing tall. Yeah. But uh, it it is a, what you're, what you're, what you're listing is probably the best case scenario, your pick where Cole turns heel, but MJF wins. It's just such a delicate line to balance uh, where it still means something where you can still move forward with the storyline. I mean, they, uh, and we'll see if they can do that. They could do something crazy where it's like Cole turns heel and MJF. He is pure babyface now, but he has realized through Cole that friendship is important. And so Cole turns heel and strong helps him and the kingdom is helping him and all that type of stuff. And then Wardlow comes out and takes them out, <laughs> gets a massive pop because you know people love Wardlow. People go crazy for him. He gets MJF's back. MJF retains the title. He's a babyface. Wardlow's a babyface. They hug, and you get this beautiful friendship moment between them that you want to talk about a full circle for the MJF character from him being his basic like servant employee to now being his actual babyface best friend then you get something really cool there too. So, I mean, that would be a piece of booking. Let me I tell you that it. right I love there. That would be, you want to talk about, I, I love that. You want to I talk about that. booking the damn territory? That's how you book the damn territory. You have Wardlow return. That, that, that would be sick. Uh, but okay, yeah. Chris, look, that so was, again, it's another, yeah. it's, yeah, it's another spot where it's hard to pick a winner, but unlike the, 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 the pre-show match, this is an exciting, unsure, unsure how it's going to happen. Yes, absolutely. And, and I'm excited for it. Really excited for it. No doubt. Well, Chris, you had mentioned to me uh, before we started the show today, obviously there was another topic you wanted to discuss right before we got into the grades. And that was uh, basically this fact that this show is happening. Uh, you know, we I've been joking, of course, the entire episode, calling it the uh, biggest wrestling event in history. And the primary reason I'm making that joke, I mean, they went like beyond what WWE normally does when it comes to like hammering home a phrase. Uh, they may have said that 30 times during Dynamite to the point where I legitimately wish I had the foresight to say, hey, you know what? Let's make a drinking game out of this. And like every time they mention the the biggest event in wrestling history or the biggest wrestling event in history, uh, you know, t- you take a swig. And then every time they say Wembley Stadium or all in London or London, England or whatever the case, you drink your, you know, the rest of your drink. It could have been a great drinking game and we would have gotten plastered doing that on Wednesday night. But, you know, without the sarcasm here, it does seem to be the biggest wrestling event in history from a single day ticket sales standpoint. They're going to be at over 80,000. It seems like they're going to surpass the SummerSlam 92 number and other uh, records that WWE has put out there. And certainly WWE does inflate its number. There's a lot of, there's a, there's a huge contingent of people that like talk about that all the time. Like it's some big deal. Oh my God, it's clearly it's you, the, who the hell cares, man. I cannot deal with WrestleMania three ticket sales talk on Twitter. Anymore. But, but Chris, clearly these people have never worked in sports or are not aware about what happens in regular sports, because I'll tell you, I've worked for a athletic department at a college. Okay. And numbers are inflated for every single event that happens. And by the way, they inflate them almost exactly the same way that WWE does. They count ticket takers and concession people and security and all that. And then you also kind of like, depending on the event, if it's softball, you add like an extra hundred. If it's 
you know, women's basketball, you add an extra 250. And it happens all the time. It happens in college football, too, because these stadiums all have a certain capacity, Chris. And you know as well as I do, suddenly the Alabama-Auburn Iron Bowl game just happens to have 3,000 more people attending than capacity shows. Now, some of it's for SRO tickets and suites and some of these other things, but these numbers are consistently inflated. Now, does WWE inflate their numbers more than others? You bet your ass they do. But guess what business they're in? Sports entertainment. They ain't trying to give you accurate figures, okay? But regardless of any of that, okay, what AEW has done here, massively impressive, 80,000 plus. Incredible. And they've done it in Wembley Stadium. I don't mean to be still in your thunder. I know you want to talk about it, but I just wanted to say that. I wanted to kind of put the ball up in the air for you. So go ahead with your take on this, and maybe I'll have a little bit extra on the back end. It's incredible. It is incredible that AEW has basically sold out Wembley Stadium and that they basically did it before there was even a card. Like, that is just incredible. A couple of months after WWE was in England and and didn't do that. Like, it is just a remarkable mark. Whatever you think of the the story builds, the card, the whatever, the fact that this, this five years ago, you would have imagined another wrestling company putting 80,000 people in Wembley Stadium is unreal. And it goes back to the first all-in with Cody and the Bucks and the tweet from Dave Meltzer and the idea that an independent wrestling show couldn't sell out, whatever it was, 10, 15,000, whatever it was. And now that that thing has turned into 80,000 at Wembley is unbelievable. So major kudos to everybody involved in this company for getting it to that point. It's just a remarkable accomplishment, whatever happens. I am so excited to see the AEW production on this stage. I've given AEW production a lot of crap every time I come on here because they miss camera cuts, they miss audio, the commentary misses something. You got to get it right for this. This is the show where you make all the highlights and the photos and the clips that you will show forever. You know, th- this is this is your WrestleMania three Hulk Hogan slamming under the giant type of opportunity here. So I, I really hope they get it right. I'm really excited to see all this. The, the, having another top tier wrestling company alongside WWE has been so good for the business of pro wrestling. And we should want all of these companies to succeed because it's better for everybody. And just thinking back to I, I got into this group of wrestlers from the original all in through BTE. Like I had heard all in was happening. I tried to figure out what was going on. I caught up on BTE to get into all of it. And, and, and just a very grassroots start with a billionaire eventually funding it all. So very, very cool. Awesome for everybody. And one other note, actually the largest attendance for wrestling anyway is collision in Korea, which we know is a totally legitimate and totally <laughs> voluntary 150,000 people in 1995. Well, I do believe days. the number is actually legitimate, but certainly not voluntary. When it is legitimate. Yeah, when, when, not, No, it was not voluntary. When, when, you're, when you're forced to be there under penalty of death, it's a little bit different uh, than certainly this. So yeah, I want to go back to what I said when All In was first announced and Wembley Stadium was first announced. And that was, and I, I made it very clear on the podcast, if they put 40,000 people in Wembley Stadium... I thought that would make the decision to run that venue successful. I also said 60,000 would be incredibly impressive and they should be really proud of themselves and thrilled if they hit 60,000. They had 80,000. It's it's truly ridiculous. Like it's such an impressive feat that words almost can't contextualize it given what AEW is and the position that they find themselves in. 
I do think that there is something to be said, and I've mentioned this previously, for this being a truly perfect storm situation. AEW was supposed to run the United Kingdom in year two of its existence. It wasn't able to do that because of the pandemic. They're finally coming over there. And for their first show ever outside of the uh, continental United States, or outside, I shouldn't say that, outside of North America, because obviously they've run Canada, their first show ever, they're bringing back all in and they're holding it at Wembley Stadium. So when you have all of those elements coming together, you have fans in the area, but not just like London and not just the United Kingdom, but probably France, Germany, anywhere else that's in driving or high-speed rail distance, and maybe even beyond that, maybe people from Australia are going to fly in or, or people from Japan or whatever the case might be. You have all these folks saying, this is an event that we haven't had the chance to go to. We finally have the chance. And the tickets, by the way, are priced in a way that even if we have to spend a lot of money to travel, we're going to be able to afford to go to the show. And you have to give a lot of credit to Tony Khan for deciding to do this because they could have picked another stadium, a smaller stadium, uh, his own stadium for, for their team that they have over there. Yeah, There's myriad things that they could have done. But Tony's like, you know what? No, if we're going to do this, we want to do it at Wembley Stadium and we'll probably sell enough tickets at a minimum where it won't cost us anything. It won't be a big deal. We'll probably get really good PR and press out of it. But do I think that he thought they would sell 80,000 and they would surpass you know, the SummerSlam 92 number and WrestleMania numbers? No, I don't think he actually thought that's what was going to happen. But there was a great groundswell. And the way that this was handled by AEW, they did a fantastic job. They deserve all the credit in the world for making this happen. And just like you, I'm very curious to see whether they live up to this expectation level that they have created when it comes to the show itself all in London on Sunday. And like I said, this is impressive on its own. Comparisons are not needed. But since there has been so much damn talk about this online and we have not spent or wasted, I should say, our time on this show going through the ticket sales numbers on a weekly basis, how it compares to this, how it compares to that, I do want to address one topic. And you mentioned Meltzer and we don't really talk about his name on the show, but he has been on this trip where he says, WWE did not believe that they could do this in Wembley Stadium. Otherwise, why would they not have booked this previously? That is absolute bullshit. Like it, it needs to be stated that that is just wrong. Okay, and, and here is why. Because Nick Khan and other WWE executives have made something very clear. If they are going to do international shows, if they're going to do shows outside of the continental United States and Canada, they want to be paid for doing those shows. Whether they can sell 80,000 tickets yes. or not is not of the matter. They want to be paid $2 million, let's say, just to go and do a show in that area. There's a reason why WWE ran the O2 and didn't run Wembley Stadium, because they were not going to get a payment, whether from the nation or from the city, to go do a show there. Let's not forget they put 65,000 in Cardiff, Wales last year. If they put 65,000 in Wales, they can put 80,000, 85,000, however many in Wembley Stadium. If they ran a two-day WrestleMania at Wembley Stadium, they would sell out both shows. WWE is enormous there. 
They don't do it because they want to be paid for them to get over there. They want to cover their expenses and they want to make sure every dime of, of ticket sale profit and merchandise profit, all that, they want that to be profit because guess what? They're a publicly traded company and they want to show that on their bottom line. And they want people to bid on them just like for the Super Bowl or just yes. like all these other major events of the Olympics, et cetera. That is the level yeah. at which WWE is operating. Now, that, does that make, does that? But, but well, anyway, adding to that, that's sure. what the John Cena promo in, at Money in the Bank. That's exactly that was, what that, that was, was for. Pitch. Correct. John Cena cut that promo to put pressure on either England or the London government, whomever makes these decisions, the sport authority over there, to pay WWE to hold WrestleMania in London. That was the exact reason that happened. Again, let me repeat. None of what I just said has anything to do with AEW. What AEW has done on its own is insane. It's ridiculously impressive. They deserve all the credit in the world. But to suggest, which has been suggested over and over again by one person in particular, but the people that parrot him as well, that WWE wasn't confident that they could do this or else they would have, it's simply not true. And I don't like necessarily the comparisons between, hey, WWE sold 90,000 for WrestleMania 40 on the first day of sales. It's two shows, so it's 45,000 per show. That's really cool. It is impressive. That is not a comparative note to what AEW did. That's completely separate. If you wanna talk about one day ticket sales, maybe they have the record at 90,000. Congratulations to WWE. But right now, what AEW is doing at this show, it seems like they're going to have the legitimate record for ticket sales at a single day wrestling event. And if that is the case, once the turnstiles go through and we get the final number, all the credit in the world towards them, they deserve it. It came together really nicely. And that's really all that needs to be said. Do you have anything else to add before we actually go on with this? And, and that's a reason to celebrate this, that that, that Tony Khan yeah. didn't hold out from doing a Wembley show to try to get some tax breaks or to try to get some other stuff. He just wanted to put on a as big a show as he possibly could for reasonable ticket prices for as many people as possible in London. And we're going to get an awesome, awesome moment for that. I am dreading the the future Twitter conversation oh, I know. when London does get a WrestleMania and we'll say, oh, WWE sold this many tickets, so AEW tickets. Were I'm dreading that conversation. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy that we can have AEW put 80,000 people in Wembley right. and WWE set its own ticket sales for WrestleMania. That's good. That's good for everybody. There was a great, it was, a, I don't know if it was a, it was a tweet or an interview or what exactly, but MJF made this exact point mm -hmm. where he's like, all the wrestlers, we're all rooting for each other, man. Like we want every show to be great because that's good for everybody. So like, it's, it's not this war that people online try to make it. So just celebrate all of this. Try to ignore all the WrestleMania three chatter that pops up on your timeline. Uh, it's an incredible accomplishment by AEW, and it's going to be fun. Exactly. What happens Sunday is going to be amazing, whether the show is great or not, just for what the accomplishment is that AEW was able to achieve. Uh, accomplishment achieve, I guess I could have phrased that better. Regardless, again, Tony Khan deserves a lot of credit for playing this right. Is it possible that some of it was like happenstance and it just so happened that it became bigger than they thought it was going to be? Probably. But I bet you they thought they could sell 60,000 and the extra 20 is icing on the cake. And even if they sold 60, we'd be sitting here saying, holy shit, that's really impressive. They put 60,000, but they didn't. They sold 80,000. And that to me is absolutely and incredibly impressive. Chris, with that, let's finally wrap this up as we always do. 
with our pre-show expectation grades for AEW All In London. As always, you go first when we give these grades. So you go, I'll go. And then of course, a reminder for everyone, if you wanna share your pre-show expectation grades, you can do that by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast and voting in our pre-show poll coming out Sunday right as Zero Hour begins. But Chris, what is your pre-show expectation grade for AEW All In London? AEW cards are really hard to grade because they are so long and you kind of have to weigh the enjoyment you're having versus the parts that are dragging and realizing how much you still have let to go. Because it's a stadium show, I think AEW will get the, the moments right. Hopefully they get the production right. It's going to add a level of excitement to it just seeing that scene. The card is mixed. We just went through it. Some of the stuff I'm really looking forward to, some of it I, I don't care. But I, I think there's a lot of stuff on here that is going to be really good matches. Young Bucks FDR is going to be a great match. The women's four-way could be a very good match. Uh, it's going to be fun seeing Sting do something. The Golden Elite versus Bullet Club Gold should be a banger. Could steal the show. Stadium Stampede is always Stadium Stampede is always fun. Will Ospreay versus Chris Jericho. We'll see. It could be a good moment for Ospreay. CM Punk's a mojo again. We'll see. Not much there. And then the acclaimed, it's going to be a fun thing seeing what they do if they drop that Harry and Megan line. And then you got the main event. So like, I'm going to go a minus here. I think it's certainly possible they hit an A, but I know if we're looking at like a five hour show, I'm going to be a bit grumpy. So I'll go a minus. I wish I had something to say, but you kind of not just stole my grade, which is always funny that we kind of wind up in the same spot, but you stole my analysis. I, I feel the same way about the matches, the show grade ultimately kind of like SummerSlam, is going to depend on what happens in MJF and Adam Cole. We're probably going to go into that yeah. saying, this is a B plus A minus show. I'm guessing that's where we'll be. And then if that is incredible, we'll probably go up to an A. And if it falls short, we'll probably go to a B or B plus. And that, that's just most likely what is going to happen. But I agree with you though, A minus going in because you have to take the spectacle into account. I think that's something we don't do frequently enough, especially when we have been talking about like the WWE shows, like Backlash, for example. If we knew what that was going to look like before the show began, we probably would have had an expectation grade that was higher because that crowd was ridiculous, right? And then even going mm -hmm. to the O2 in London, that crowd was crazy. So take that crowd from the O2 and like quadruple it. And now you're getting all in, in a stadium. Now, sometimes things can get lost in stadiums if the acoustics aren't right, it doesn't come across on screen. And again, there's going to be a different experience being there live and, and watching it from home. But I'm with you, though. A minus is where I sit. The show should reach that level. That almost should be like the floor, even though the card is not as strong as it could be, just based on the possible moments that can be created. Again, what if there's a surprise? What if Mercedes Monet debuts? What if... Goldberg or or what if just something else well, what if something else crazy actually, happens that we haven't even considered those are all possible something there something there you mentioned earlier in the show we didn't talk about it in the MJF Colt spot I don't think we're going off the air with Goldberg I, I don't think he's going to get involved in the main event <laughs> I know, you threw I know. that idea out there earlier I know uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen no it really shouldn't happen and if Goldberg was to come in he should fight like Wardlow like he shouldn't be fighting MJF or anything like that I, I was just kind of spitballing like who could actually show up and obviously there's the edge conversation but I don't want to get into that because it's kind of been debunked edge taped a video on social media you can watch it we tweeted it at getting overcast I don't even want to waste our time on that type of stuff but regardless the point is 
there's elements that we're probably not even considering that you have to imagine Tony Khan has saved for the show that could put it even beyond our expectations. So I think A- minus is the safe place to be uh, going into All In. And look, I'm just excited to watch the show, and I know you are also excited to watch the show. And for us to hand you that AEW All In London instant analysis podcast as soon as the show goes off the air Sunday. So with that, Chris, let's go ahead and wrap up this ultimate preview. Of course, I hope everyone has been enjoying this so far, but a few reminders on the way out, and we're going to give you our schedule of events before this is wrapped up. So don't skip this final portion of the show. First, though, a reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about So please leave those five-star ratings and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. On Spotify, you can also leave the five-star rating. If you leave a review, though, we will read it live right here on the show. As mentioned, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that. You also get to vote in our pre- and post-show polls on Sunday surrounding AEW All in London. And you have the opportunity to DM us and tweet us questions or comments that we will most likely read on that instant analysis episode when we also discuss your pre-show grades and your post-show grades. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for five bucks a month, you can become an official getting overhead. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. You get bonus audio, news posts, and your contributions directly and financially. Support myself, Chris, and the continuation of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. While we were taping the show, we actually got a new subscriber who we will shout out, of course, on Tuesday's edition of Getting Over. Speaking of Tuesday's show, that is going to be your WWE Payback Ultimate Preview. On that show, we will also address the unfortunate death right before we taped here of legendary wrestler Terry Funk. We just felt that there wasn't time on this episode to do it. We will talk about that on Tuesday, but we will have that WWE Payback Ultimate Preview for you on Tuesday, on Wednesday, another NXT show. Next Thursday, your AEW All-In Fallout and AEW All-Out Ultimate Preview. And then, of course, next weekend, you're going to have your WWE Payback Instant Analysis and your AEW All-Out Instant Analysis. It's also week one of the college football season, which means the Silver King and Vintage. We are going to be absolutely exhausted. Real quick, I forgot to mention it in this whole thing. Having All-Out a week after All-In is one of the craziest, dumbest things I've seen in the history of wrestling. We gave AEW a lot of praise for All In. I don't know what the heck All Out is supposed to be or why it's happening that way. Just bizarre. I guess we'll see how it plays out within a week of build. Yeah, especially since, by the way, it's not like there are tangential storylines where you can say, if this happens on All In, then this is going to be booked for All Out. They haven't set up anything like that. So they're just going to do a one week build. Yeah. You don't you don't do you know you don't do backlash the week after WrestleMania. You you, you let it breathe for a minute. So that's bizarre. It's bizarre. really weird. There the long and short of it, there's limited dates that Wembley Stadium was available, so that's why they booked all in here and all out they wanted to keep on their traditional weekend in Chicago. So that's the reason it happened, but yeah, man. I mean, and, and I think we're also just kind of angry about it because we have a lot of work to do next week and we're going to be exhausted and it's like the worst timing in the world for us. So like on top of everything else, it sucks for yours truly and for Vintage Chris Vanini. But folks, look, this was a great addition. I hope that you agree uh, of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Thanks to Chris, of course, for joining us. He will be back with me on Sunday for your AEW All in London instant analysis. You do not want to miss that. I promise you for Vintage. This is the Silver King signing off, leaving you 
with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank <laughs> you.